This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Good everything, y'all. Hey, uh, good for the crack of dawn, for those of you on the West Coast, hello. And those of you in Brazil and London, you know, it's a nice time for you. Yes. Uh, and for the rest of y'all everywhere in between, hello. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Dr. Carr. Hey, Professor Hunter. How are you? Good everything. I am good in everything. And I yes. know some people are triggered right now because they don't see any books behind you, but it'll be all right. Y'all will be yeah. okay. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's okay. I'm, I'm, it's like the word of God. It's in you. you, don't, you don't need to <laughs> no, well, you know, you know, I brought a few. I couldn't not bring nothing, so you know, I had to bring something because we got to work. So yeah, I had to uh, come up the road. We have a uh, uh, a meeting. There's a regular convening um, called the Black Family Summit, and uh, we're here. Uh, it's a lot of African centered organizations from around the country who meet and plan and debrief and see how we can support each other. So. Myself and Dr. Beatty up here, we in Baltimore, um, and with the um, with Bobby Leonard Dunstan. I don't know if we ever crossed paths with Leonard Dunstan. For the better part of 20 years, he ran the state of New York Office of Children and Family Services. He's a licensed social worker. He has to get his man's social work at, uh, at Hunter. He's retired now. He's a Livingstone grad. Um, he was the, he's president emeritus of the National Association of Black Social Workers. Um, Bobby Lynn, he makes the call, and we all come. In fact, the social workers, black social workers have named their, their social work institute for him. Wow. So, That's yeah, wild. Yeah. I used to cover child welfare. I, I covered it. Oh. A little six-year-old, uh, Elisa Izquierdo, uh, was killed by her mother's boyfriend. And the hmm. uh, uh, they brought in this guy who used to be in child welfare. He ended up being fire uh, commissioner, too. Uh, and I got really close with him. But that was in the 90s, you know. Wow. But so he probably he might you and then you probably know him kind of chocolate color brother he has a no i'm saying after that i kind of moved away from the daily news so oh yeah paths crossed so he probably took over after dustin um, was there in cuomo who was the governor at the time oh then he was he predates that then he was there no no, he old school yeah that's the 80s yeah he's a straight pioneer Okay. This right. this dude right. and traveled by four or five continents. He got wow. three four hundred awards. He when he was in Benin, was it Benin or Guinea where they made him like honorary head of state? Leonard Dunstan's one of them dudes who in the governance structure, you say his name, the right people would be, oh wow, you Leonard Dunstan. Yeah. I mean, but to white people, they know him as the man that put the hammer down when he was over New York State. He didn't play that. So that generation before us, really. Okay. Those Negroes that plowed the field so that Deion Sanders can go to Colorado. You know what I'm saying? We're going to talk about one of them today. In other words, that's not the generation that we're from. This is the generation before us. And he's from that generation. So we just, we just glad to be here. And a lot of Nubians are here because uh, Cobra folks are here, Aztec people are here. It's a lot of, it's just, you know, and this this reach, oh my goodness. I mean, the, the plan is just, whew. It's honest, right? I mean, remember that commercial with the, the lady with the shampoo? And then you tell two friends, and they tell two friends, and then and the screen kept populating. That's how oh, I imagine this place. Y'all go tell two friends. This this the season. Go give two gifts. Like let's yes. you know let's let's populate narrative in Nubia with the people that uh, about building something. Um, yeah, and it's really something too in terms of how the world, as you say, um, there's a there's a summit in D.C. this weekend. The uh, African leaders. 
most of the countries on the continent are represented either by their heads of state or senior elected officials or cabinet officials are in D.C. for this big convening the United States has put together, which is a beautiful thing for the social structure. They're trying to drop the hammer on these continental Africans. And of course, ain't nobody in Africa picked a side in this Ukraine war. And the United States is not going to make them. But then there's this whole counter conference. And I really, really tried to figure out how I could get down there. But And of course, everybody wants the Nubia John Henry Clark because the eastern region of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations is having their annual John Henry Clark tribute this afternoon, but it's virtual, so I'm going to be able to go there at 3 this afternoon. But I started to say that I can't get back to D.C. this afternoon for the counter summit because the people around the country and around the world organizing a kind of protest summit for this meeting of African heads of state with the United States government and I'm cracking up because the university I work at, Howard, is hosting all these events that are partnered with the United States side, which is, of course, on brand. And they think they're doing the right thing, and God bless them. But the tensions that are there, and here we are in this space, building out, building out. And it's almost like that non-aligned movement. We with the people. We were, the yeah. black, we were the black nation, we were the black country. So these institutions, either you're going to get right or you're going to get left behind. Brittany Grinder, did, did you see Brittany Grinder? I know you talked about it. And I, I was yeah. listening in back and forth on Sirius. But I, what did you think about that video where they edited out when she shook hands with Victor Booth? <laughs> I mean, y'all think we stupid? <laughs> did you see that? Literally, yes. No, no, but she went like this, and then the next thing she's over there. Like, wait, what just happened? Oh, you shook hands with him because the first guy embraced him. The, 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 the state, the person of the US shook hands. Then she went like this. Next thing you know, she four feet in the other way. Why did y'all do that? Why don't y'all? Oh, because you want to make her something she's not. Brittany Griner is a basketball player. She don't know nothing about the merchant of death. She don't know about the fact that he cut his eye teeth in Afghanistan or that he met his wife in Johannesburg and took her from another man who he's down there to do an arms deal with. She don't know the fact that he sold arms to Yanita and Jonas Savimbi and killed a bunch of Africans in Angola and then turned around and armed everybody in the damn biggest war in Africa to kill more people in the world since World War II in Congo. She don't know about what he did in Rwanda and Burundi. She don't know about what he did and gave guns to Charles Taylor and them and plenty of people did in Liberia and Sierra Leone. She don't know nothing about that. She knows she got caught with some of cheese oil. She happened to be going home and then she went to shake the man's hand. We don't know nothing about it. This is this amazes me. Two things can be true at the same time. We could be glad that sister is back and we could be like, what the hell did y'all, this man and killed more black people on both sides, on all sides. And, and y'all set him up in Thailand when he was going to Colombia to do another deal. And you know how much dope is on the streets in the United States because of these wars that came out of the FARC and the damn Colombians that y'all been back in the whole time. And the biggest arms deal in the world is the United States. So him being in jail didn't stop no guns being sold. But this ain't about that. They in the streets now. <laughs> Putin is celebrating. You know how big a propaganda win that was for them? We traded a basketball player for the guy that we told y'all was coming back. F the United States. What are we going to do about this, Professor Hunter? I guess nothing. And listen, and I mean, I'm just the, the ignorant rhetoric, you know, because I'm just learning all of this in class with Carr, as always, right? Well, together. Well, you saw Lord of War with Nicolas Cage, right? That was Booth, Victor Booth. 
Did not know. Did not know that because the the narrative is, you know, he killed Americans. Of course, always because Americans are humans. Ain't nobody else. Right. Right. And that's why people are mad that Brittany is home because they don't see her as American. In that scene, Jean Pierre said, you know, well, you traded a basketball player. She said she was an American. She's an American, and that's not resonating because they don't see her as an American. But the other part of it is you left the Marine there. Trump left the Marine there. He got captured under Trump. Why didn't Trump bring him home? Oh, and a Marine with a little, uh, with not the best record. I mean, quite. Well, he got dishonorably discharged from the Marines for stealing $10,000. He has a, a passport for Canada, from Ireland, from Ooh. England, Ooh. from America. So he's what? got, and they holding him as a spy. And what Kareem, what I know, not just Kareem Jean-Pierre, what she said, but they weren't going to let him go. So we either had a choice to get Brittany no one home or to get Brittany home in exchange for this guy who was already in jail for 12 years. For He wasn't going to be in jail for life. He had a 20-something year sentence. He was right. going to be out in four or five years anyway. That's right. So yes, yes, we let a whole ass murderous person leave this country, but they weren't going to make any swap. That Marine was never coming home. And if you cared that no. You didn't hear you didn't hear peep during Trump's administration when he was captured. So and and what about the Taliban leader that Trump let out along with ten thousand other Taliban ooh, that ooh. are literally killing Americans? So you either <laughs> care about America, you don't care about America. I know you don't care about Africans. So that shouldn't even be you shouldn't even be mad about this arms deal if all he killed was a bunch of a- Africans and others. Yeah, here here or abroad because right. Brittany Griner's an African too. Since uh, oh yes, <laughs> you don't care about none of us. Nowhere. Isn't that something? It's weird. You know, so uh, last week we talked briefly about uh, emancipation and I started watching it and I turned it off like after 10 minutes. Damn it. Wait a minute. You too? Yes, I turned it you off. You too? I, I got, I got, I got 10 minutes in and it's it. off the porch. I, I'm I done. Do it. I, I, no, because I, lo- I love that kind of stuff because that's the kind of thing where you see that and you be like, what the hell was I thinking? We're not, we're not ever talking to these people. Hell no. See, this is the problem with memory. When you remember, you, you, you start acting right. I'm not. No, hell no. What did he say? Did, how far did you get in, bro? All right. So, you know, the feet washing. I was like, oh, this mm-hmm. is they praying. They praying. Mm-hmm. They babies. It's all, you know. And then they, and then they come. Little governance. Little cultural yeah, meaning yeah, making. Yeah, little yeah, ways yeah, and no ways. Like, yes. Yes. Yeah, you feel tenderness. Yes. yes. We were no human. Question. We have family. family. We, we love God. You know. I was well, like, okay. Okay. They snatched him, you know, he wasn't going, you know, he beat, fight, or we fight back. Okay, okay, I, I can get with the fighting back and I'm going to bite you and all this stuff. I'm ripped the boards off that you're not just going to snatch me up. I'm a man, you know, I could walk. Right. The heads on the pipes. I was like, okay, this going to be, I was like, this going to be too oh, much. Oh, wait, but, but the, the gun to her head. The gun to her head, but then. Yeah, you, you know how many times they pulled that trick? See, that's what I'm saying. I'm sitting there looking like, yeah, I'm going to wipe all y'all out, intellectually, culturally, but there will be no peace because there many times that cracker pulled that trick. And by cracker, I'm not using that as an epithet. I'm saying the poor white, the overseer, that the man standing out there that said, you called Jeff Davis. Yeah, right. exactly. The whip cracker. The, in other words, this is a class structure. And that white man stood out there in the yard and said, yeah, the next, don't, don't, don't tax me again. I'll come down there and talk to Jeff Davis himself. That nigga, the best blacksmith I have. Yeah, that's the class structure within whiteness. But guess what? Not my business, because I'm against all y'all. The one with the gun, the one with the checkbook, 
and the one over the Confederacy. Cut all their heads off and switch them out with the ones on the pikes. And that's when you know we mean business, frankly. Not run up down no damn sidelines for y'all cheering at a Colorado basketball game. Are you crazy? No, I'm sorry. Not your fault. Not your fault. What did Woodson call it? The sequel to slavery. This is not over. See, this is probably saying, well, that was then. Is it? Was it? This is how you get a Britney Griner. This is how you get a Deion Sanders. We are not people. We are property. This, you hear, is the fastest cornerback I got. I'm, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. The uh, the best blacksmith I got. In other words, you, in a, you work for me. You're not human. How do you snatch that man from his wife and his children? And then what does it do to the children, bro? What did it do to those children's children? What did it do to their children's children's children? What did it do to us then? Who don't remember the circumstance, all we remember is the fear. Don't go outside. Don't send it to the police. Be quiet. Don't speak back. Don't just be quiet. Mm -hmm. And then we do buck. We put all the expectations on somebody that buck to be the hero for the rest of us. This is psychological. This is what Amos Wilson called This is black on black violence in service of white domination. I saw the streets of Baltimore last night. How do we talk to each other? I, I seen I must have seen 50 police around this hotel, right around Baltimore Avenue. I went over to get a cup of coffee. It's midnight because, you know, I'm going to go get some coffee. And all the people out, they all up and down. Must be some clubs right here. But so y'all from Baltimore, y'all know what I'm talking about, right here in Inner Harbor. And all the police standing out there. And you already know. All I'm thinking is, I know enough about Baltimore to know, and I know what people think they know from watching The Wire. And I'm like, that's the Baltimore Police Department. These the paddy rollers. And like you, I had to turn it off. I had to turn it off. Because that these are your grand, great, great, grandsons out here in this street. So you turned it off. When are you going back? I'm not. I made a decision. <laughs> Wait a minute, what? <laughs> I made a decision. I can't, I can't do it. I can't. We're, so, you know, and I'm very clear about where we are in history. We are just talking about that before we came on. I'm very clear about what's around the corner. I'm very clear about what needs to happen next. Very mm -hmm. clear about who needs to... Uh, figure this out and come on and stop playing. And I'm like, okay, you said this was a freedom story, but it's not a freedom story because you start with the trauma and the fear that is epigenetically in us. And, you know, we know what happens when you step out of line, Tiffany Cross or whomever, when you, when you don't do exactly Karen Hunter, what, what we tell you to do or what we expect you to do, because it's not even spoken anymore. No. You know, when you, when you say the things and you are actually free, and then Kyrie put on his uh, shoes. I am free. But what, we don't even know what freedom looks like, Doctor Carr. So, no. well, well, yes, not all of us. It, it, looks, it looks like what we're doing right now, right? Because I'm the thing they're not collectively. collectively. Yeah, but, well, the thing they're not talking about, of course, and they can't. They, I don't know. Maybe they will. I'm gonna give it the benefit of the doubt because I've seen some reviews that are calling a superhero movie because you know, ain't no black people escaped from slavery twice, three times. So they don't people don't know the history, but. Uh, maybe they'll gesture toward the Maroons. The I was going to say, why don't they do like multiple series on Maroons? Because there's Can't do that. many. There's not just Nanny and them. There nah. was many in America. Whole in Louisiana? That the white folk couldn't do nothing about. That's right. Why don't we see those stories? Now yeah, that means it's uplifting. And, and, <laughs> and it should be called, I wish you would. <laughs> you know, I wish you I would. Wish, please, come. That's come out here in the town. Right, like that. That to me seems like something we should see more frequently than the person that has to go through barbed wire and <laughs> unthinkable right. odds to be free as opposed to people that just said, I wish you would. And everyone was like, you can't go over there. 
you can't right and we are, we, we don't speak about that yeah. yeah we don't speak about that over there because yeah. if we pretend it's not there but we talk it all the time well that's why highly you know Greenman has been working for the last 20 years on his documentary he got he's got so much footage I mean, he got footage from Oklahoma, from Racketville, Texas. Then he go into Mexico and come back into uh, Texas, then go back to Oklahoma. They were at a Maroon meeting where the Colombians came up, the Afro-Colombians, to talk about Maroonage. And they are in Oklahoma talking about this. One of the main people doing the talking was this young activist out of Colombia. She's now the vice president. He's got Marquez on tape when she was in the streets in the United States talking about Maroonage because that's what they were doing. So in other words, Y'all, the social structure can't talk about that because that would give us ideas. That's the momentum of memory. And right there in Louisiana, I mean, every Mardi Gras, them Louisiana Negroes tell you, that's where the Mardi Gras Indians came from. The Mardi Gras Indians are the Maroons. It's the Native Americans of Louisiana and the Africans that escaped. And that's why they dress up like Indians in the Mardi Gras. That's look, the crews with a K. The crews are the Maroons. And they all down there throwing beads. Right. No, no, uh, uh. that's why when Louis Armstrong was made king of the Zulu in the Zulu parade, and people clowned him because he had blackface on, he was like, "Yeah, that's the convention, but y'all don't know nothing about this parade right here." It was the dream of my life to be made king of the Zulus. The Zulu parade is the Mardi Gras Indians. That's the Maroons. Y'all don't know nothing about Louis Armstrong. Y'all think you know him because you see him play that horn. You don't know nothing about it. And they not, they can't make no movie about that. You make a movie about that, the kids like, what? We resisted? Not only did we resist, we won. We here, ain't we? And guess what? That fleur de lis that y'all wearing, New Orleans Saints, the fleur de lis, the, that, that flower is, you think it's Mary, you know, the merger. That's the that's the flower of Aset. That's Isis. You got Isis' name on your head and don't know nothing about it. Get away from us. But we don't remember, and we remember it's old for you. We're going to remember that gun to that sister's head, too. Why? Because you don't pay for that. They paying for it today. This is where they pay for it. We by us ignoring them. Well, we think we don't care what you think. And we, we ain't arguing with you no more. God bless Tiffany Cross. God bless Jason Johnson. God bless Jonathan Capehart. God bless Joy Reed. This ain't that. This ain't that. And the stronger this gets, the more they'll leave them alone. Why? They'll be relieved to have them over there. And the more they get a little bass in their voice. Because <laughs> guess what? Look. What they're not saying is the reason Negroes turned up like that wasn't just to run randomly through barbed wire and try to find the Union Army. They knew there was something out there they could get to. Yeah, that's why when they escaped to the Maroon place, the people would come back and not speak of it. Why? Oh, what happened to so-and-so? Uh, we caught him. That's a lie. They got away. They got away, didn't they? And that's why y'all don't want to talk about it no more. They ain't running to the Union Army. Carl G. Wilson, uncle ran to the Union Army, came back with the army and whipped the slave master. You mean, why don't y'all make a movie out of that? That happened for real. 1943, Negro History Bulletin, my recollection of veterans of the Civil War. He lays it all out. Just take it, put the words in the damn script and tell it. Oh, you can't do that. Why? It's too much. Because you believe Negroes is good for running and dancing and jumping. And if they get out of line, you break them. But it's all right. Because we don't woke up now. I think that's why that Dion thing hit such a a raw rawness for us. And look, I guess we got a little ahead of that, didn't we? Yes. Last week. I mean, you've been talking about it. So that was the other no, we've been talking about it. Yeah, you 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 predicted this would happen, you know, um months ago. So oh. you know, you you did, you did. And you know, it 
And again, there's a lot of opinions and that's fine. You can have a visceral reaction to it and, and strong feelings, but if it's not grounded in actual facts, history, it's just an utterance and we should stop uttering. Let's let's have knowledge. I'll <laughs> be right there. You'll be putting yeah. bars. I'm just saying, we should talk based on stuff we know, not just stuff we feel. Feelings are things, right? They're, they're not reliable. I promise you. And you could choose how you feel about a thing too, which is the other amazing uh, thing about being a human being. You can choose to be outraged and upset and you could choose to be happy. You you have choices, but knowledge is here, you know, and, and you could choose to accept it or not. Or read a book, as Van Latham would say. <sighs> All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Carr. You got further than I did. I, I, I'm, I'm seeing. No, 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 no. I, I lingered. You got to the heads on pikes. Yes. Okay. You didn't get to the heads on pikes. He got into the wagon, and you were done. Start moving, and I'm like, "See if I if I keep going, this is what we are gonna talk about." Okay. And and we, I think to me, you know, it's, everything is in divine order, as you say. This space, this this Nubia space, this narrative space, in in that broader context, and then being able then to share that with people who are, have not yet come into that very clear maroon space into that peripheral space. It's almost like when we release this out into the broader valences, that would almost be like releasing it out into those plantations. But we're in the dismal swamp. Now, we don't mind sharing this because, of course, we've got the maroon place that is sacrosanct. And we know people are coming and they have been coming. We know the numbers. We know the people. We hear the conversation. But um, divine order. Divine order. It's divine order because last week was just before our brother made his announcement. This week is after the SWAT championship and the announcement and all the way, and everybody got an opinion. And then next week is a celebration bowl. And so for the first time in our two and a half plus years, we have a sequence that has emerged organically. And I want to just publicly, I mean, not that he'll ever hear it, and that's fine. But thank Beyonce. Thank him. Thank him. I absolutely think this is in divine order. I'm not thinking about it in a Christian way of knowing. I almost think, you know, Dion's playing the role, though, whether he knows it or not. He's S.U. Mm-hmm. S.U. in the Yoruba. Is that the trickster? Yeah. Okay. I learned that. Mr. Anansi, as you said, I heard you, I heard you talking about Anansi last week. Oh, I had Orlando, Orlando um, Jones was on. Uh, yeah, you had to correct. You had to correct the sister. Yeah. had to lay around. I was laying. Yeah, Orlando was on. Um, I love him because he's mm-hmm. another brother that reads, you know, and I don't okay. care who you're married to. Y'all get caught up in the wrong things. First of all, uh, that sweatshirt that you're wearing, you can only get it in narrative. Uh, and narrative is the, the repository. It's our Alexandria, you know, uh, library. It's where we, we collect everything. Every in-class with car, most of them are annotated. We have all of the resources, the bookstores, all of the black bookstores are more than 300. It yeah. is where all of the classes are archived, every single class, uh, all of the classes from Maroon's Medicine Chest to the Metanetra classes. And you can take them at your own pace, do all of the all of the work, the groundwork, you can listen on audio. That's narrative. Narrative is the library. Nubia- Even, is- even as you're sharing it with other people, because you and Sunyata talking about that tea last week on Sirius, I, I had to stop. I'm trying to grade paper. What? <laughs> I mean, just the knowledge, yeah, and that's just a little clip. Like you say, all of it's in the other place. Yeah. I'm, I'm sprinkling seasoning here, bringing it over there. Just, you know, Ooh. 
getting a palate because you know if you're not used to vegetables or different kinds of spices and curry mm. and cayenne and stuff you you're, you're gonna reject it so i'm just sprinkling yeah. a little bit here bringing it a little sure. bit over here but if sure. you are really about the deep dive you're gonna go to narrative and and learn and get your whole life newbie is where we convene it's not twitter it's where yeah. the folk who have got, you know gotten the knowledge they come there's a lot of shenanigans it's fun especially in the karen hunter show uh chat Oh, no question. <laughs> it'd, be it'd be lit. People are having a lot of fun, which is good. We should have joy. And it's not all, you know, stiff academics. There's a lot of characters. No question. Because we're individuals. We got fingerprints. We're going to come as our full selves into this space and make it even bigger. So that's Nubia. And, but you can only get that sweatshirt in the store narrative because, you know, mm. that's it. That's it. Yeah, we honor our, our folk. But I'm, I'm sorry. I, I just had to to make that through line because there are people that when we bring these things up, they don't know what we're talking about because they only come on YouTube, you know. So they're like, yeah, yeah. Which is, listen, I, I can't, I can't tell you. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a through line that has to be made because people don't know. And now, and now you know. You don't know now. You know. And you know there are people whether you don't have the means or you haven't quite figured out if you want to now. But 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 we are building and you know i think what has been the most essential has been this way that is very organic in terms of even the the structure that's really one i want to to say a few words about today in the context of as it emerged since last saturday to now this context of almost a three part conversation so last week we kind of entered the space this week i want to keep going to that space and, and talk about this kind of point of entry this Deion sanders moment as it relates to the most important thing the question that you added prof from 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 sonny sanchez how do it free us and then next week we really want to sit with this idea of how we um situate how we do we because there is no natural we. There's a we built, built that based, that's based on the trauma. There's we based on the commonalities of cultures and the kind of not the same, but shared sensibilities, ways of knowing, cultural meaning making. But the we is hard work to build. And that's our task. That's our honor. That's our job. But as you say, that through line, that through line is, is critical. It's essential. And that has been, in that essential word, I think the most important thing. We often say in terms of Africana that the beautiful thing is to hold a mirror up, is for each of us to see each other and to and help each other see ourselves. So even as you and Dr. Allen were talking last week, um, and not even last week, a couple of days ago, when you were talking about how you and your father took your tea and how he would load it up with sugar and with uh, cream and with milk. And then you, you gradually began to wean yourself out of that sweetness. But in the moments that you shared publicly, the conversation wasn't just about tea. It was about that relationship you had with your father and what y'all were doing while you were drinking the tea. I mean, that's a teaching moment. And then what that does is it, one of the things it does is elicits from us from the rest of us, our memories of those governance relationships, those protocols, as Angie Porter would say. 
And those protocols then allow us to see ourselves as fully be full beings, not just as individuals, but as part of communities. And that is really the work. The work isn't to tell people what to do. The work is to help people recognize that you know what to do. You know what to do by having experienced things that are not what to do. And you know what to do by experiencing things that make you realize this is what I should do. And we have to trust that. So we, our job is to displace the structure that was imposed on us that has us mistake ourselves for figments of other people's imagination. Because that's what the West has done. That's what European societies and civilizations have done, and societies, not civilizations, over the course of the last several hundred years. They've imposed a way of being in the world so that we might look at, you know, no shade to Meghan and Harry. I was. Yeah, so what you think about? Look, we I, on the same vibe, right? I was just gonna. I, I'm queen, the queen of my house, my mama. I don't know nothing about no Megan or her, no. her mother in law. What the hell y'all? y'all worry about them two for? We are getting a peek into how ridiculous it is. You oh. know, she talking about well, okay, because you know she she actually is raised by a black mama. You know, and going into your grandmother's house, I got a curtsy to your grandmother because she okay. She, and you know, some people are like that's irreverent, <laughs> but you know, from where we come from, that's your grandmother. What nobody's watching, there are no cameras on, and I still gotta do this. That's weird, you know. Well, or, that's or not, or not. Right. we have our own we have our own protocol because you wouldn't go and stand up over your husband or your wife's grandmother in her house. Then it wouldn't be a curtsy, but you damn sure ain't gonna stand up over it. And then we got protocols too. That's true. So that's like, true. my thing is I'm saying, so I understand coming in with the elder. But I'm trying to figure out why we would somehow get so caught up in them two lives instead of going to interview our elders. <laughs> because, but I know why, because they have superimposed their structures on us. And so we're more invested in these people than we are in ourselves. No wonder you don't escape. You want, you're trying to get in the plantation. You ain't trying to leave it. All you want to do is get in the house. Can I just get in the house? Okay, if I can't get in the house, would you at least come out here and tell us about what's going on in the house? I, if I, it's like them white baby dolls they used to, to give black children at Christmas. Every year you get the same pasty white face the baby doll and then you wonder why the people, uh, you know, or in South Africa where you put all the images of whiteness and then you have a black man say, if you want to understand something, trust black women. Okay, that's exactly right. I agree with you, Trevor. You're exactly right. And I know that you trust black women, you know, and then you go home. <laughs> I have to leave for that one. No, I'm just saying. I mean, go home. I mean, hey. Uh, so if you trust black women. Wait, wait, get, uh, I ain't mad at him. I'm saying I, he's right. He's absolutely right. I wish he would take his own advice. I mean, he's right. Oh he's right. So what is that? You know, and I struggle. You know what it is. You know, I want to say, Dr. Carr, I want to say, you know, people should love whoever they want to love. Agree. But the contradiction and the hypocrisy that out of your mouth. You don't even, it doesn't even ring. You know, watching the griot thing and Bob and Allen sitting there and I'm and celebrating blackness. Yeah. And I'm like. Oh, wait a minute, the grit. you talking about the Byron Allen? Yeah. That's a lot of money. You spend a whole lot of money to bring them people. Anytime you see Pat LaBelle stand up somewhere and then all them people, it's like, how much did you pay for these people? Tyler Perry. Your we name and name out. All <laughs> of the celebration of blackness and I'm like, oh, well, who you love though? Who you love? It's I don't know what, you know, what should we feel? And I don't want to, you know, talk about somebody's personal life because what you do in your, in your bedroom is your business, but is you, it? 
is it? I don't know. So this is, can you help me? It, it is I, a team I have personal opinions about it, of course. You know, we of all course. have our opinions. Yeah. But, you know, what should we do with those opinions? Because you, you, the powerfulness of what he said was absolutely true. Mm, yeah, mm -hmm. it was until up to the point. Right. So what does that mean? What do you, do you well, not I mean, hear cognitive dissonance of like you, you don't see yourself when you're opening your mouth to say these things? We celebrate black, we're doing this for black people, but all my money's going to a white woman. <laughs> when right. I got an well, institution that will pass for white. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, I'm not mad. I mean, you know, the beautiful thing about us, what we're doing here and what we're joining in terms of an unbroken genealogy of doing this we're not the first to do this it's an honor to be in a space that is joining those spaces that have always existed the beauty is that we don't really worry about those things okay. we think about them we talk about them and we go on i mean you know I, hey i think trevor noah is funny i mean i don't watch the daily show but then i don't watch stuff i mean i'll watch roy and then come on i'll skip now you know i'll see obviously i saw that clip but, but i have to heavily curate that because you only have 24 hours in a day and a lot of us get stuck in it. I don't watch MSNBC. I mean, I I, I watched enough last week, you know, and I, and I saw the clips of Van Jones. I mean, I know Van since he was in undergrad at Vanderbilt. Van, my brother, best friend. They had a black newspaper in Nashville. Black newspaper, they started the third eye. So I've been knowing Van since he had Afro. So, I mean, my he point is, is very, that, very black. No question. You know, I'm going to do this thing for black people. And black no question. I mean, I ain't mad none of them. Do you? Do, do, do you? We understand. That's not a problem. But I mean, you know, the challenge is the more we know, the more we don't need to be concerned. I mean, a guy like Trevor Noah, you know, when you read his, uh, what is it, Born a Crime? I got the house. I, I, I took an hour and kind of thumbed it. I mean, it's not heavy reading. So, you know, you get a sense. But let's be very clear. Those of you who are in South Africa, those of the fam that are in South Africa, we know South Africa. In fact, you know, we know elections are coming up in 24. Cyril Ramaphosa almost resigned last week. Cause they caught him with like six hundred thousand dollars in cash stuffed in a in a couch in his at his, at his on his one of his farms, and he said, "I mean, you know, Ramaphosa is the guy who they wanted to follow Mandela, but he got skipped in the line. He went out and became a millionaire. I mean, there's a whole story there, but the story I want to get to is the generation that Ramaphosa was born into, the current president of South Africa. Between Nelson Mandela and Cyril Ramaphosa, it's Steve Biko in them, and so the Black Consciousness Movement." In South Africa, I mean, you know, folks who studied Black Consciousness Movement will tell you, um, you know, Biko and them were saying Blackness is not skin color, it's a consciousness. And so what they set up in South Africa was, as we know, this tripartite system. You got white people at the center, you got Black people on the periphery, the majority of people in the world, and then between the Black people, the Bantu people, and the white people, you had shades of whiteness. That's the colored population, whether it be Cape Malay, whether it be, you know, the indigenous people who, you know, then they start saying, well, you know, can you stick a pencil in your hair? Is the pencil going to fall out? If the pencil fall out, if you do that, we're going to put you in another category. What's the broadness of your nose? What's the whole, you know, all this kind of foolishness. Well, Trevor Noah fits in the middle category somewhere in that range. His blackness is a political blackness in some ways, I think he recategorizes that, but he ain't that black. Remember when Colin Powell made that joke, I ain't that black. Well, it, it, you know, how are you defining black? And who are the we that is defining the black? I'm not mad at Trevor Noah. Trevor Noah grew up in a society where there was a penalty to being black. So when he says, I trust black women like my mother, my auntie, yeah, them black people. 
black people. Anyway, you black in South Africa, that means something different. You are not white and you are not colored. Trevor Noah born a crime because of interracial marriage, but, but as he is born, he ain't that black in that society. And that's fine. He jokes about it. He talks about it. And I get a brother 100% credit for his observations and for his experiences because those are his experiences. Now, who he chooses to sleep with, love, whatever gender, whatever race, so to speak, because ain't one race, humanity, but whatever choices he makes, that's a consequence of his upbringing and the decisions and his socialization and his choices in the context of it. So he chooses to do that. But I think the more we know about the societies, the social structures we live in, the easier it is to understand perhaps the field of experience out of which individuals make choices. White is the most desirable thing in the modern world. People want white when it don't make no sense. That don't make no sense. Yes, it does in a white world. Are you kidding? So people saying, well, he couldn't find no black woman. Of course he could have found any black woman he wanted. But why would you pick a black woman in a world of whiteness? White, black people didn't get you that job on the Daily Show. That was white benevolence and white people and, you know, saw your talent and, and took you. White, white people didn't give you this world. White people didn't let you create a space that was so powerful that you can walk away from it because you ain't really walking away. You're just moving into another valence. I'm not mad at your brother. I'm not mad at him because, you know, what would that do for what we're doing? See, what we're doing has space to build and out of that space, we understand. And what has been, you know, to okay. me. So, so the question always should be how do we free us, which mm -hmm. is where we mm -hmm. land, exactly. you know, and some of us get stuck in that, right? So I'm I'm gonna chew up the meat, spit out the bones type yes. of person. So it's like, all right, That's yes, in my mind, it doesn't one and one is not equal in two. Okay, I'm gonna put that over there. I'm gonna receive the goodness, okay, because that makes sense, and then I'm gonna discard the hypocrisy and the thing that is not congruent or that doesn't quite line up. Is that how we should, you know, if it don't free us, should we be? And, and my thing is, we I'm not dating him. So, you know what I'm saying? It's like, right. who dates this MK? Right. All right. And I appreciate the teachable moment. Yeah. Because, you know, when you say that, when you say, yeah, then you show a picture, you'd be like, huh? No, 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 no. Yeah. So what does that tell you? It tells you that even after all that, whiteness is a hell of a drug. <laughs> In other words, you can't even... You can't even walk in that truth. And the fact that you ask yourself, we have to ask ourselves even, I think, another question. Why, why do you have to trust black women over everybody else? What is the social structure that would make you make a statement like that, that we would recognize as a statement that is more reliable than not? But if you trust black women, if that is your default position, if you want to understand society, you should ask the black woman first, you know, give your rationale. He gave his rationale. And what was his rationale? Whiteness. Huh? What does that mean? Well, that means that the reason you trust black women is because the system is so oppressive that at the core of that, at the periphery of blackness, as a, on the periphery of whiteness, at the core of that oppression is black women because black women can't afford, as he said, to F around and find out. That's right. Why can't black women not afford to F around and find out? Because if we are going to go into the future as human beings, then females are more often than not more responsible for ensuring that the species goes on. 
So when he says you can't F around and find out, yeah, because your mama couldn't F around and find out. You had to be protected. You had to be raised. You had to be educated, fed, and housed, and clothed. And regardless of what your daddy was doing, in the ideal world, it would be a unit. But guess what? If it ain't an ideal world, your mom can't just walk away. And so that's absolutely right. And when you put race in the middle of that, it becomes an impossible task for women. So then the question becomes, so what do we do about it? How does it free us? Well, it free us by staying together and making sure that black women don't have to bury that, that, that role alone. No, that we build community. So what you think about that, Trevor? You're absolutely right. Okay. Uh, see you tomorrow. What are you doing? <laughs> okay, so it was rhetorical for you. The rhetoric was right. This is what Marimba Ani would call in her book, Yerugu, and her work generally, the rhetorical ethic. Meaning what? The thing you've said is true, but the behavior doesn't match the thing you've said, which is fine, unless you have a way of knowing and an expectation that the thing you say and the thing you do are supposed to match. And that is absolutely at the center of the idea of speech, whether it be the Medu in ancient Egyptian, whether it be the Jolly in West Africa, Burkina Faso, as we talked about Hampate Ba, Jolly meaning blood. When this person speaks out of memory, we must listen because their only job is to be accurate. And like blood in the body, the speech of someone whose job is to preserve the memory is to make sure that the body of the people continues to live through circulating the memory. The memory is the blood of a community. Memory is the blood of a community. That's why they call it jolly. Jolly literally translates as B-L-O-O-D, blood. Uh, parenthetically, footnote, Byron and everyone else. Griot means storyteller. Y'all can drop that French word now. Griot don't mean blood. I mean, I understand it's cute and, and, and it got us a little closer. But there's going to be at some point you got to reject the speech of your master if you really want to get to the thing you meant, because that is a beautiful concept. The jolly is blood. And so jolly don't make it into the mouths in Brooklyn and Queens and, and Manhattan. Don't make it to Long Island. Don't make it to Staten Island. But when somebody look at you and say word is bomb. That means what I say and what I do supposed to be the same thing. So Trevor's right rhetorically. And who knows? He may end up right the other place too. But what your mama did for you, one day if you have some biological children, hopefully your partner will do for y'all's children. And if she black or not, if that is the function, then you know, the lesson you learn from your mom or your auntie goes on, albeit in a way that some of us might say, ah, but if it goes on, it goes on. And so you know, again, here's the question as it relates to that. Again, this whole notion, I'm glad you, you framed it in terms of through line. Because the through line that unites all of what we're doing, not trying to do what we're doing, the through line is we. The through line is us. The through line is the thing that allows us to validate anything we talk about by reflecting on our own lives and then sharing those reflections. Let's get very concrete about that. You know, the center of the framework that we have been walking with together and building out and developing this, this Africana studies framework. And I'm calling it Africana studies because that's where it emerged, but its ultimate objective is to walk away from the academy. This isn't a, you know, we talk about things being academic, but we, very, we work very hard to center this work we're doing in we, 
What does that mean very specifically? Well, that means that even now, here we are, as we always are, and we discuss topics, bring up some points, and then all of we participates. So when we look at the chat in Nubia, people began to connect the things we're talking about to the things they remember and experience from their communities, from your communities, from your, 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 your experiences, your memory. And as our memory strengthens, we unblock those passages. It's the equivalent of uh, cleaning out the arteries, cleaning out the capillaries so that the blood circulates. We don't have no strokes. We're going to live a long time. In fact, we're going to live forever if we circulate the memory, the momentum of memory, the memory of blood. So when this releases and folks are watching on YouTube, when we look at the chat on Nubia and then the comments on YouTube, YouTube people, as we bring up topics, we're going to do this in a minute. When it comes to Deion Sanders' piece, again, I'm grateful to SU because SU sits at the crossroads. SU sits there so that you can't stay at the crossroads. You're going to have to make a choice. And our brother, Deion Sanders, our brother, Coach Prime, however you want to call himself, this is SU. SU is a disruptor. Deion Sanders himself calls himself a disruptor. He felt some kind of way. I saw him on a little you know, Facebook Live trying to answer questions. You know, what about my life? Hey, bro, ain't nobody mad at you. You SU. You don't get mad at SU. You make a choice. But in making that choice, and we talk about it today, we're going to bring up some examples. And the genius of our people is revealed by our experiences. That's how you test whether a thing is true or not. What is your experiences? And then as you share your experiences, how do we connect? How do we say, oh, okay, that's interesting. I don't know about that. Oh yeah, but I had a similar, and then we begin to sort through and we build a we, because the we doesn't exist outside of us doing that we work, the we work. And so, you know, the volume of participation, that's what begins to free us. How do it free us? Us building us is the first step to freeing us. And so let's let's talk about that in the context. Um, I was thinking about it, like, let's say last week, had a little bit of a conversation in anticipation of this thing. So Deanna Sanders leaves and he goes to the uh, Colorado Buffaloes, right? Buffalo, I think they're Buffaloes, right? So why is this in... This feeling so intense. What's all this intensity of feeling and opinion about this choice? I think it's, I think ultimately the sooner it's because Deion Sanders isn't the issue. He's the issue. He's the prompt. He's the, the, the thing that, that stirs the drink. And he always has been. Right? Since he first came to public knowledge, run up downfield Florida State. Then he goes professional. Wherever he played, you know, Dallas, San Francisco, Atlanta, wherever he played. Football and then with the baseball, Yankees, Reds, Braves, helicopters, man. You know, yeah, this is what the man does. He's 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 consistent. And she was consistent. So what is the issue? Deion Sanders not the issue, he's a symptom. He's a symptom. And I'm not mad at him. Constantly evoking God, the divine, you know, and and, and the Christianity, the way of knowing that he has developed is also symptomatic of the society we live in. It's a prosperity gospel. A little bit deeper, a little bit more homily, a little bit more, you know, got some ebonics in there. So, you know, when, you know, when, when Eddie Robinson, the coach at uh, at Alabama State, said, you ain't swag, he's right. Deion Sanders ain't swag, and, and he's wrong. He is swag. It, by the Southwest Athletic Conference, you're talking about 
something rooted in Africana cultural meaning making, Deion Sanders is swag because swag itself comes out of Africana and Deion Sanders comes out of Africana. And that ink you're using has a particular gloss when it is used in Ebonics. Ink don't mean the same thing in the white world as it does in Africana. Ink has a kind of a semantic meaning. So, you know, when Joe Biden, you know, Joe Biden sitting with uh, Brother Lenard on the Breakfast Club used ain't grammatically correct. He said, you, ain't, you, you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Black people got mad. Why? You didn't get mad because he didn't use it grammatically correctly. Because what he's saying is, if you black, you got sense enough to know that while I ain't one of you, you can most likely bang on me till I do something. I need you more than they do, and I may do something more than, than these other people will, although ain't none of us with you. The anger came in, and it came out the mouth of a white man. Am I giving you license to use Ebonics? Of course, we give out those passes depending on who we like and don't like, but Deion Sanders at midfield and the coach Alabama State at the Jack State beat Alabama State, Eddie Robinson, who himself went to the NFL, himself was an all-swag football player who then came back to coach at his alma mater, who's in the College Hall of Fame at his alma mater. And then he's looking at this guy across the, the, the field from him, who has just beat him, another black man. And he don't want to shake his hand. He won't push him away. You ain't swat because I know what you're going to do. I know you and everybody else know you. Well, guess what? That's a governance tension there. I'm not mad at either of those brothers because Robinson is right and Robinson is wrong at the same time. The reason you mad at him is, is proof of the fact that he's swat. If by swat, you mean a dimension of Africana. And the reason that he ain't swag is because you see this guy as somebody whose word ain't his bond. Word is bond. Now, as Bamani Jones said last week, in the wake since we were together and then to now, you know, he's going, he's making the social structure rounds on CNN and his podcast, whatever he's saying. You know, if you had come to Jackson State and simply said, look, I'm here for a little while. I'm going to make this move. But while I'm here, I'm going to improve. He said, you could have just been honest. Bruh, you know you can't say that. He said, shoot. He can't say that. If he had said it, it would have been, first of all, I don't even know that he believed that. Of course, he knew he wasn't going to stay. But, you know, you want to, you know, you want to believe that you're somebody else. I'm not mad at Deion Sanders for not being built like that. It's hard to be built like somebody who stays. And, circumstances often dictate the choices you make. So people are saying, you know, well, if these other black uh, coaches had the opportunity, opportunity, if these other black coaches had a path like Sanders has now, thanks to Jackson State, by the way, because, you know, as Urea said in office hours, I was bringing, again, all this works together. So if you're not in narrative or Nubia, then you're not in the kind of real-time work we're doing I mean, you all know if you're on YouTube that every Monday night we got a two-hour block in the day-by-day -day sequence in narrative, the Metanetric class and, and Dr. Amen and all the other classes that are going on. You know you know that on Monday nights we have the Introduction to African Studies class. And next week, y'all know we're doing science and technology. Jacob Carruthers' piece, Dayline English's piece, Abdullah Kalamat's piece. The homework has been posted and so it's there. But on Monday nights, we do that for a two-hour block. We do the class the first hour or so, and then it usually bleeds over a little bit, and then we just open it up and have a conversation. Well, you know, Urias says something very interesting. Urias, who, of course, is himself a coach. You know, wrestling is his way of reaching young people and working with them, young student-athletes. And he said, you know, Dan Sanders skipped over all the steps. 
He was never an assistant coach. He didn't have to hold a clipboard. And he, it's not his temperament or personality. Jackson State benefited from having Deion Sanders. And Deion Sanders benefited from having Jackson State. He said, man, spend his own money. In a minute, we're going to talk about spending your own money. Oh, we're going to have a good time in this little space we got this morning. Because, see, this is maroon space. So we're gonna, we have governance conversations here. We're not worried about other people. The fanboys and fangirls of Colorado. You know, the ones when he went to the basketball game, uh, whatever it was, basketball game with his son, family, and they all cheering. Yeah, we've seen this before. It's called spectacle. This is what they expect of Coach Prime. Coach Prime, not Coach Sanders. Name not Deion Sanders. You name Prime Time. And we're hoping you can recruit enough of uh, that's my best blacksmiths out here to uh, get us some more money for our coppers. We're going to talk about that money in the coppers too, because see, imagine if that mentality at historically plantation athletic programs at colleges and universities had taken root at HBCUs. Imagine if it had. You can't catch them people. You can't catch them people. Why? Because it ain't enough for you. If every alarm gave back, what's your what's your uh, what's your objective? How do it free us? What is your objective? Create football superpowers at HBCUs so that the students who go to those schools don't go to go to class, but go to play football for a year or two or basketball for a year or two, if then, and then go to the pros. And in a minute, we're going to talk about all this. I'm just kind of laying it out. We're going to put this back into the thing. Now, as I'm talking about this, please keep in mind, in terms of this through line that you see, Prof, please keep in mind, y'all, that our conversations now that this space, Professor Hunter has kind of built, I mean, this architecture is glorious. It's built maroon space, the dismal swamp, the swamps of Louisiana, the back of yard, the, the, green, <laughs> the green mountains of uh, Jamaica, Colombia, this is the place that we have, the maroon spaces, in Zynga's liberated zone of what we now call Angola. You know, all this space, we got the space. And then out of that space, as we contribute our experiences, we're building and unblocking those arteries and capillaries because we connect what we're talking about to what we've experienced. And then as it releases into this other valence, as everybody's here and YouTube and beyond, people are sharing and it's reverberating, people are putting their things on. Every time we talk about something specific, it happens. But let's continue. What you see then is the question becomes, what is the purpose of our institutions? We're going to talk about this. Let me pause here and think about this. Because again, last week, this thing hadn't happened. Between last week and this week, it happened. So I said, let me just sit here with this in a minute and think about this. This convergence. We must define what our institutions should be about because it isn't just about institutions. The intensity of feeling and opinion we've had in the last week about this announcement, here in the United States, by the way, because we know the world didn't stop spending. They replaced the whole president in, in Peru last week. Pedro uh, Castillo, who uh, indigenous, former school teacher, they consider him a, a extreme leftist. He tried to swap out his cabinet again. They locked the man up. The sister who's in there now, uh, Dina Bularte, the vice president. She's a lawyer by training. The market don't like that kind of thing. They don't want this thing to go extremely left. The former president of Peru, Castillo, last week called the president of Mexico and said, look, can I come there? But they caught him before he could get out of the country, and he's locked up. He wasn't corrupt. The guy is trying to do something for the people, and by the people, I mean the poor, and he didn't have the felicity to begin to, to ride the wild horses in Peru. You know, they've had six presidents in the last four years. 
That happened while we talking about Deion Sanders. I mean, let's just be clear. I mean, it's a whole kind of stuff happening all over. Kind of mentioned South Africa. But anyway, but the point is that this week, I said, let's think about this question of institutions. So I've been reading, um, that just finished and then interviewed this brother. He's uh, named Brian Jones. He is the director of public education for the New York Public Library. He's written a very important new book called The Tuskegee Student Uprising mm-hmm. on the history of Tuskegee University. And I recommend it. I mean, some books I would say, I, I ain't got it. But that one, if you got a couple of dollars, you might want to have that conversation. We had a conversation with him last week. And we were talking about the nature of what happened at Tuskegee in the 1950s and 60s, particularly 67 and 68. The students called for a black university. This is a call that was done in the 60s, late 60s. Howard University gets the most kind of visibility and nobody gets any real visibility about this call. It ends up being the birth of what eventually becomes institutionalized university-based black studies. And that's less and less important with each passing week as we had this conversation. Because again, remember, the source of our collective work, the we, is we, not these institutions. We'll, we'll get to the HBCUs in a minute. But in that conversation, I was talking with Brian and, and he said, you know, these are students, many of them first generation going to college, who inherited a civil rights, human rights struggle from the faculty and the residents at Tuskegee and in the community. The previous generation, cats like Dr. Charles Gamillion, Gamillion versus Lightfoot, those of you know that civil rights case, uh, voting rights case at Supreme Court level. Gamillion and them, uh, you've heard me, we've talked about many times, Jesse Guzman, um, who worked for Monroe Work at Tuskegee, and we'll get too deep into that, who wrote a book on the Tuskegee Civic Association. These are the black upper and middle class people in Tuskegee. And they had all these black people, doctors and lawyers and faculty at Tuskegee who lived in that little town. But then you got the farmers and the people who live in the rural community and the poor people. That's most of the black people in the black belt of Alabama. And these young people coming to Tuskegee, first generation, many of them, from outside Alabama, many of them, there's one sister in particular, Gwen Patton, who is just, I, I would encourage you all to get her memoir. It was published posthumously a couple of years ago, 2020. Gwen Patton is a major figure. And again, as we are thinking through this through line, this idea of what has been the most essential, when I mention names like this, the beautiful thing about it is, looking in the chat in, in, in Nubia, then looking in the comments on YouTube, if you know these people, this is where you put your memory with our, the rest of us. We're literally every week writing we're writing books. This is the annotation piece. This is how, and, and what that does is it displaces these individuals in a society where people say, well, you're a scholar, you worked on, when I hear people say, I'm working on such and such, really? Yeah, I've interviewed a lot. Why don't you just throw out the name and let the people tell their own story? Because well, that would that would completely collapse this structure of intellectual privilege that the academy represents. I don't mean close the university, although I don't know that any university can be reformed of any cultural background. But what, it, what we're doing is shifting the authority to center it in where it needs to be. So if you know Gwen, if you knew Gwen Pat, she's from uh, Michigan, uh, Inkster, Michigan, went to went South Tuskegee, was part of that movement. Chester Higgins, who still walks the earth, the great photographer who was in school at Tuskegee, who helped Ryan Jones to do this research as he entrusted him with documents from this movement. But anyway, I don't get too deep into that. As we t- I was talking to Brian, we're having this conversation, Dr. Jones, about this Tuskegee uprising, because you know, I have a special place in my heart with Tuskegee and Alabama, my people, my mama's people in particular. He said, you know, there's this tension between us seeing HBCUs, black colleges, as conduits for our generations to acquire the skills to prosper. 
with a prosper for what? For the community. Okay, is that rhetorical? It shouldn't be. The models of most HBCUs got some that sense of service, some sense of, of, of moving together and doing this for the community. So you want the students to prosper, but these students were calling for something else because they took the cue from the previous generations who were teaching them, who were training them. They were going out in the community. There was a cat there, Dean Phillips, who's still alive. Y'all know Dean Phillips, he was Dean of Students at Tuskegee back in the 60s, you know, still around. He was sending students out into the community beyond Tuskegee. And as they're doing these programs, these education programs, they're getting quote unquote radicalized, whatever the hell that means. That means they're connecting to the people and the people have their ideas about what they want to be. This is a, there's a direct relationship between the students of Tuskegee and all the students who came together in neighboring Lowndes County for the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. Stoney Carmichael's on that campus. Malcolm X is on that campus during this period. Back and forth, these tensions, and these students are getting more and more grounded in the idea of this institution must reflect the values and the needs of our people, not just the upper class and the middle class, and those tensions come out. So in the end of the conversation, me and Brian talking, he says, you know, in some ways you got prosperity, and you've got this quest for justice. He said, those two things represent the heart of this HBCU work, prosperity and justice. I said, hold on, brother. Up until this moment, my favorite motto for HBCUs, probably Clark Atlanta University, I'll find a way or make one. I'm not a big fan of the Latin stuff, you know, even though I understand the tensions and why they did it, you know. School I went to Tennessee State, enter to learn, go forth to serve. Yeah, you see that all the time. But I like that you find a way, I'll find a way to make one. But I like that idea. Prosperity and justice. How do you have that together? Well, in some ways, I think this Deion Sanders story touches on those tensions. Prosperity and justice. Because Coach Sanders is given a really much almost a prosperity gospel line. We need to rise together and thrive together. And you st stop taking advantage of HBCUs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to get this and we're going to get this the thing you deserve. We deserve this because it's abundance. And then, you know, when he leaves, he's getting criticized. He's out there answering questions. And last week he said, yeah, what about me? You keep saying, what about, you know, what, 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 what are we going to do for us? What about me? What about me? What about my family? What about my mama? Bruh, you got enough money so that you ain't got the, oh, but how much is enough? Maybe there's no enough. And that's your right. That's his right. Pause. If you want to say that's the right, fine. But understand, as Bamani said, if that's what it is, say that up front. Mm, can't do that. That's your job not to say it up front. That's your job is to agitate. And if nothing else, we know the public life of Deion Sanders over the last couple of decades has been disruption. I'm able to do this, so I'm going to do it. I don't play football and baseball at the same on the same weekend. I'm going to get in the helicopter. Go, Why? Because I can. Okay. So then we say, well, we want to do that. No, in some ways, we cheering for Deion Sanders the same way we cheer about cheer about any runaway slave. In other words, you just want to see somebody just messed up. But he'll say, I'm an agitator. I'm an agitator. Okay, that's a very much an SU energy. He ain't SU completely, of course. I mean, the metaphor fails once you go too deep into it. But at the end of the day, it's a disruption. It's supposed to, he's, I'm there to make you think. He literally said that last week. I'm here to make you think. Okay, bro, now we thinking. Let's think. Let's think about this. Again, if memory is the lifeblood of a community, what we've done well, what we haven't done well, how we can remember and go forward, if that is at the center of at least this little corner of 
the Nubia narrative universe and the universe beyond as we build moment by moment, week by week, as the social structures around us continue to uh, uh, to eat eat themselves. In fact, uh, my bag is over there. I won't get up and get it. Uh, yesterday's headline in the Financial Times. Uh, I think you all probably probably saw if you looked at the news a little bit. Uh, Exxon Mobil announced I think a fifty billion dollar stock buyback. Uh, Chevron is doing somewhere in the mid twenty billions. Really? Yeah, because I mean, even as the gas prices have lowered a little bit, but the point is that they are profiteering. And Joe Biden is saying, you know, y'all should give mm -mm. our first obligations to our stockholders. And, and, and so what you see is as this world around us continues to boil, we, in terms of our governance formations, this is our another opportunity for us to renew the momentum of memory to figure out what we need to do to make our advancement and maybe save the whole damn planet, at least the species, for a little bit longer. But in that conversation, that requires unblocking our capillaries, unblocking our arteries, circulating that blood, having that jolly function. And in the momentum of memory, we get so upset at this moment when it comes to Deion Sanders in some ways, and everybody got an opinion, as you say, Prof, in some ways, because we're experiencing it viscerally. What does that mean, this intensity of experience, this uh, of feeling? I think we have to think. Let's think. Deanna says, I'm here to make you think. Well, first of all, let's get rid of the social structure question. Again, we use our African studies framework. Social structure question is who we are to other people. We know who Deion Sanders is to other people. We know who Brittany Griner is to other people. We know who each of us is in terms of African people to other people. We know that that is a range of things, but one thing it's not is human in the same way that people think of themselves as human. Race makes that impossible. It makes as much as they would want, people would love, want to love to embrace Deion Sanders as a human being. Simple fact of the matter is he's Coach Prime. So a source of our irritation is other people got an opinion about this. Well, I mean, what would you expect him to do? I mean, if he got more money, you hold on, hold on. You ain't got no opinion. We can have this opinion in public, but we having a governance conversation. You need to stay out of this. Because if you want to come in here and have an opinion on this, then we want to have a conversation with you about reparations. And we want to have a conversation with you about a whole lot of things. Since you got an opinion on this, well, if you have an opinion on this, we're going to have an opinion on a lot of things. We're going to have a candid conversation. But guess what? We can't have no candid conversation in the world where race is framed. Because that's where people make the mistake of, you know, well, you know, you said this about uh, you, that. But when you're saying about Brett Favre, you said this about Kyrie, but you didn't say this about, you know, no, see, you can't, you, it's no parallel. Whiteness defines it. They say what they want to say. So that irritation is there. So let's just set aside the social structure for a minute. We having a governance conversation. And let's finish it up today. So in many ways for the social structure, let me say one other thing. Deion Sanders is a social structure creation. He's cultivated like a crop, but he's cultivated out of our governance formations. In other words, what does the social structure want from Deion Sanders? They want entertainment, just like they want entertainment for all of us. Run fast, you know, tell a few jokes, not too many, play a little hip hop music, not too much. You know, all the things that he knows from Florida State, he knows from the Yankees and, and the Braves, and he knows from the, 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 the Cowboys and the 49ers and the Falcons. He knows all that. He's going back in that world now. He's had a chance to sit in a governance formation at Jackson State 
and be able to relax. Maybe there's tension between his older son and his younger son because the younger one seemed like he looked torn about it, right? I don't know if I want to leave, right? Do you? I mean, but the point is this. When he said on Facebook Live last week, you know, I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this for my for my son. Okay, you try to put your son in the best place to be in the league. We understand all the Look, there's no problem with how you're navigating, but understand all of that is coming out of a social structure that has a certain image of who we are and how we are valued that you have internalized, and that's fine. None of us are immune to it. We're having this conversation in English, for God's sake. We are all subjects to what Carter Woodson called the sequel to slavery. We're trying our best to anchor ourselves in ourselves, not only as an act of self-defense, but in, in, as an act of restoring and expanding our common humanity. That's why we're here in Baltimore now, this Black Family Summit. That's what Bob Land and them been doing for decades. That's what the National Association of Black Social Workers has been doing for decades. That's why they put their statement out decades ago. Interracial adoption, we're not for it. We'd rather have children adopted by people out of their community, but we'd rather have them be adopted by anybody, rather anybody who is they're safe with, than not be adopted. Okay, so we're not against white people, but can we find some black people? Why? Because we're trying to restore our humanity. These children been through enough. This is we're talking about the family. We're talking about the unit. We're talking about the community. I'm not talking about these. These, these ways that they're critiqued, these people talk about, oh yeah, we're talking about family, is that patriarchal? No, 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 no. Save that for the social structure dissertation defenses. Okay, we're talking about governance formation. And how do we know whether it's valid or not? We talk about our own experiences, our own joys, our own sadness, our own traumas. And we then, how we validate isn't through somebody's dissertation committee or somebody's publishing company or somebody's grant or somebody's award. No, we're validating it by our own common conversations. Okay, so in that space, Deion Sanders was sitting in that space for several years, most of it during COVID, with an institution that said, we don't care if you never held a clipboard, we don't care if you're not assistant, you have never been an assistant coach, you Deion Sanders, you got all the shine, we want that shine here, and you're joining something, well, we were already leading the league in attendance and sweat, well, we think you're going to take us to the next level, the question is, what is that next level, what is your concept of where you're trying to go, because when the guy leaves, as you knew he was going to leave when he came. You knew that deep down. The guy is consistent. And she was always consistent. And she won't be that same guy. You know what I'm saying? That same guy. You knew that. You didn't want to say it. You hoped it didn't happen so soon, but it happened. And now in the wake, you're roiled. Why? Because we come down now to the fundamental issue. Some of me and uh, Robert Jones were talking about, uh, Robert, this is daddy's name, Robert. Uh, talk, me and Brian Jones were talking about last week. Got to wrote the book on Tuskegee. At the at the center of this issue of HBCUs is that we have never fully defined the purpose and mission of HBCUs. We've always just made the assumption. And here's where I want to go for a few minutes this morning in this conversation. Thank you, Dion. You see, your job is to make us think this thing. What is the purpose and function of these institutions? Because we know individuals don't beat institutions. And we know that you move from one institution to another institution because that is your life course, your objective, what you say God said to you. That's fine, brother. No problem. And thank you because this has been the biggest conversation about historically black colleges and universities probably ever. And it was all triggered by a social structure definition of blackness, one that we have so deeply been deeply marked by that it drives how we see ourselves football coach that became a coach because he's a celebrity because he was a football and baseball player not a towering scholar coach 
these little coaches aren't scholars. And here's where we get to talk. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. <sighs> there are tensions between institution building and disruption. Sanders is a disruptor. He disrupts beautifully. We love watching him disrupt. Whether it be an offensive scheme on a football field, whether it be stealing a base or hitting a home run on a baseball field, whether it be showing up dripped with all the gold and swag and telling kids to go to class and you ain't wearing shower shoes. and Hey, I'm with it, 100%. Leading Jackson State, J Nation with the big J on his end with the oversized hat turned sideways. I'm a little shaky about that, but I'm okay. Our word on the street is they're going back to the block JSU. I don't know. Y'all help me because, again, we're annotating this as we go on. I want to hear about this. Next week's the celebration poll. I'm still, well, I ain't going to say less about that. More next week. But, you know, Sanders is a disruptor from the NFL, the Major League Baseball, then the HBCU Athletics, and this overflow idea. Now, the idea is you recruit these young brothers, they come to a HBCU, they see what it is, they get their friends, next thing you know, you've upset the apple cart. So Strush couldn't let that happen. He was going to leave, because at some point, they said, we'll give him a billion dollars, and we can't handle slavery better. We talked about that last week. So, but, that's a, but from our center, the question becomes, how do it free us? And that is where I want to go. Is there anything in our memory? Is there anything in the momentum of memory as we unblock our capillaries and arteries? Is there anything as we're doing the jolly function? D-J-A-L-I or J-A-L-I, jolly. We've talked about it many times on the narrative. We talked about Hampate Ba. We've done a lot of work on that. We'll do a whole lot more. But is there anything in that function to help us understand? This foundational question Professor Hunter has put into this six conceptual categories, the seventh overarching question, yeah, uh-huh. But how do it free us? Well, I think there is. And I'm going to take this directly from the question of how we subsume ourselves. When Eddie Robinson Jr., no relation to Grambling's Eddie Robinson, Stephen A. Smith, but when Eddie Robinson, the coach of Alabama State, says you ain't swag, he's not saying you ain't black. He's saying the, perp the reason I'm here isn't because I can't go anywhere else. And people are saying, yeah, right. Well, because some people who had a chance to leave didn't leave. Okay. And again, each generation inherits from previous generations the momentum and they make a different set of choices. Because remember, for 10 years, for 10 years on the campus of Cheney State University, there are two statues. One's already there, the other one's planned to be there. Two statues for Cheney State University. You know what those two statues are? Not faculty. Not Octavius Cato, who's at the Institute for Colored Youth. Not Fanny Jackson Coppin. Not, no, the two statues. The two statues. The former coach of Simon Gratz High School. Any of y'all from Philly? He was the coach of Simon Gratz High School. Then he took a job. 1980. 1972. At Cheney University. His name's John Cheney. John Cheney took his Cheney team to the NC2A play, uh, playoffs. For the same 10 years he was there, he was the men's coach, the women's coach, same gym, divided by a curtain, a barrier sometimes, because they had to practice in the same, sometimes they had no heat. You know, the bus breakdown, going to games. We talked about this too. Remember, Jim, we talked about John Cheney's memoir. We talked about the women's coach memoir. This sister just retired, Vivian Stringer. Cheney University, 1982, went to the Final Four. 
first and still to this day, the only historically black college university to go to the final four in 1982. 1982, John Cheney took a job at Temple University. Vivian Stringer took a job at the University of Iowa. And in the social structure, the only thing that they talk about in terms of C. Vivian Stringer, one of the winningest coaches in the history of women's basketball, and John Cheney, one of the most legendary figures in the history of men's basketball, only thing they talk about is in white schools they worked at. But a lot of people don't remember, and there are two statues now. Cheney, there's a statue of Stringer, Chad, statue of John Cheney. Come on now, go ahead, Chad. John Cheney was my uncle's coach at Simon Gratz. See, let me tell y'all something, pause here. Give me 30 seconds, 30 seconds. I want this to be very clear. All of my fellow academics, that's your job, okay? But this is the work. So if you say you're doing the work when you write an incredibly brilliant tome, 200 pages, tightly written with all the theory and all of it, yeah, and then, you know, 500 people buy it, and I'm one in 500, read it, you get the rest, it's beautiful. Yeah, that's something else, just the work. You see these annotations coming up and the ones you'll read on YouTube later? That's the people telling their own story. We don't need no interlocutor between the people and the social structure. Because we're going to tell our own story. We're unblocking arteries. Y'all fill up this chat. Y'all fill up this annotation. I get to go back. And this is where the books are written. Gwen Patton wrote a beautiful memoir, autobiography. After her years at Tuskegee, she traveled the world. Pan-Africanist went on, lived in New York did all, for a long time, did all this work. Came back to Alabama. Started an archive at Trinum State. College, uh, community college, two-year school, the first archive at a community college. Gwen Patton, the sister who was in the Tuskegee Student Uprising, and me, and me and Brian were talking about this. I said, bro, the beautiful thing about that is when she was interviewed by the history makers, interestingly enough, Gwen Patton said, the reason I did this here, the reason I convinced the president of Trenum State, and by the way, Trenum State is now named for Council Trenum, who was the president of Alabama State for many years a major figure in the Alabama Teachers Association. We're gonna talk about them Teachers Association in a minute too. Trenum State College, Montgomery, Alabama, Gwen Patton started that archive because she said, these papers don't belong at Auburn or Emory. They don't even belong at Tuskegee or other places. They belong at a place where the students who go to this place are the direct heirs. These poor people, these first generation students at a community college, these are the heirs. To the, to the people we were fighting for. And that's why this archive with these papers about Alabama go be at this black community college named for this black legendary figure in higher education in Alabama. That's very important. Okay, coming back now. So yes, so okay, Gretz was your, uh, Cheney was your uncle's coach at Simon Gretz. We're filling up the annotation. So, but nobody screamed bloody murder. Of course there's disappointment at Cheney when John Cheney leaves Cheney State and then Vivian Stringer leaves Cheney State. Much more accomplished, both of them, than Deion Sanders will probably ever be at the college level. And that's not shade on him. I'm saying it's a different time, it's a different era, but let's be very clear about that. Different circumstances. And they both went on to be legends and they both had love for Cheney. In fact, they talked to each other just about every day when you read his memoir, and I knew John Cheney a little bit because I was at Temple. So you hear him talk, you hear her talk, they talk all the time. Cheney's now ancestor. But there wasn't the same kind of thing. So we're looking now into the momentum of memory to coaches at HBCUs that might give us a glimpse into how this momentum of memory played in previous generations and what we can learn about it because Coach Prime has given us an opportunity now to think. Thank you, brother. Let's think about this. What is the purpose 
of athletics at HBCUs. We can't catch the white boys. In fact, I want to mention something. I was thinking about this in the context of why you can't catch the white boys. Oklahoma State University. Let's talk about Oklahoma State for a minute. I was looking up something the other day. The reason I looked this up wasn't because of Oklahoma State. I was reading USA Today a couple of days ago, and they had a front page of the sports section had a story. Some of y'all may have noticed a strength coach. I didn't know him. His name is uh, Glass, Rob Glass, G-L-A-S-S. He is the highest paid assistant coach in college athletics. He makes a million dollars a year, $1.1 million a year to be the strength coach for Oklahoma State. What the hell? How is that possible? Well, they play in a stadium at Oklahoma State, which is just uh, west of Tulsa. They play in a stadium named for a man who made his money in oil out there, Oklahoma. His name is T. Boone Pickens. Y'all know that name, T. Boone Pickens. T. Boone Pickens Stadium. Stillwater, Oklahoma. The HWCU founded in 1890, the Moral Land Grant Act. It's younger than Jackson State. But uh, students pay about $14,000 a year to go there. And uh, they have about a billion and a half dollar endowment. T. Boone's Pickens gave $165 million to their athletics programs in 2006. He's an ancestor there. Over the course of his life, he gave hundreds of millions more. He gave $400 million to, ge to, to academic programs, including geology. Why? Because you're going to spec, you're going to look for oil. You can't catch that. You can't catch it. The reason they pay an assistant coach $1.1 million at Oklahoma State to be the guy to train you in lifting weights. I don't know what kind of guy he is. The article says he's a great guy. I don't care if he's a great guy, bad guy. He make a million point one dollars to be a coach as they say in the South, a coach. Ain't no coach making a million point one. And, it, and the question is, why would you want million dollar assistant coaches so we can compete? No, what's the purpose? What? It, how do it free us? I see how it might free somebody going to the league because Deion Sanders' whole thing is you come with me, you're going to the league. Okay, that's great. Start with your son, that's beautiful. But how do it free us? Well, because it shows you the way you can do it. No, that's one by one. That's that prosperity gospel. I'm sorry, bro. In terms of ways of knowing, I absolutely get it. I know where it comes from. It's not going to harm a little my life because word is bond. If you're going to be that, you should come in and told them that from jump. And they still would have come. Why? Because them is the cats who are coming to see you. Because whether you say it or not, we know you mean it. We see your life. You've been very consistent. It's not a rhetorical ethic. So don't come and say, we're going to lift out HBCUs. And I'm going to go in there. I'm gonna... I know you even think you might mean that, but that's going against everything you've done. That would be like saying, trust black women and uh, then you go date one. In other words, <laughs> but that would be going against everything. You mean. So I know what you're saying sounds good to me. That's what I want. But I got to watch you because that would not be consistent with, I mean, you played for 150 football teams, 500 or so baseball teams. You went that, that, that. You was in the rap video. You was at the pool. Then you come here and say, I'm supposed to believe that what you're saying, which goes in the face of everything you've ever done. I ain't mad at you, bro, but you got to know. I'm laughing. Look at that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. All right. So let's continue. Is that how coaches work at HBCUs? Well, I had to turn to my alma mater for a minute. Tennessee State. I wanted to do this because there are examples 
that we can use. And one of the examples, this is a brother who was the track coach at Tennessee State, Ed Temple. This is his book, Only the Pure in Heart Survive, Ed Temple. Ed Temple, Only the Pure in Heart Survive. Ed Temple was the track coach at Tennessee State for decades. He was Wilma Rudolph's coach. She wrote, in fact, the foreword to this book. This book was uh, written by Ed Temple with the help of a, of a ghostwriter and also his wife. Um, Ed Temple and his wife and their daughter, but Temple and his wife for decades ran the post office at Tennessee State University. He is the most accomplished track and field coach in American history. His teams, as we know, black women, won Olympic medal after Olympic medal after Olympic medal, almost 30 of them. Uh, they won the Pan American Games over and over again, medal in all these areas. Ed Temple could have gone anywhere by the end of his career. But as he said, I'm dedicated to Tennessee State. He said in 1950, the Tennessee State track program consisted of a partial track ending at a dump. No budget to speak of. Three or four fellows and two girls, Gene Patton and Frances Newburn. This was the first year the country had a U.S. women's team for the Pan American Games, and Patton made it. I coached both men and women from 1950 to 1953. He went to Tennessee State, by the way. In fact, the first chapter here is called the weirdest chapter of them all. He said he got tricked. He said, if I hadn't been tricked, I wonder what I'd be doing to get here. In fact, let me just pause here. 123, one hour, 23 minutes. What time is 822? This is just enough time. I want to take our time and walk a little bit through these examples of, of, of Ed Temple because there are many other examples I could have used. John McClendon at Tennessee a &I State College. Some of y'all may know that name. John McClendon, born in Kansas in 1915. Uh, what part, I forget what part of Kansas he's from. John McClendon, who studied basketball under James Naismith at the University of Kansas. Yeah, at James Naismith, who was the coach at uh, North Carolina Central. Well, they called North Carolina College for Negroes. That's who's playing Jackson State in Atlanta last week. He was the coach at Tennessee State, the first coach at any uh, college to win back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back national championships in the NAIA, Dick the Skull Barnett and all them. Some of y'all know those names. Dick Barnett and them playing for the Knicks. Still around. But McClendon, I met Coach McClendon late in life. They named the floor at Tennessee State, the basketball floor for him. One of the great, one of the great basketball coaches. I thought about him. I thought about, um, on one end, Hiawatha, Kansas. That's where he's from, Hiawatha, Kansas. He, he was, when he was coaching North Carolina uh, State College for Negroes, now North Carolina Central, they played a game against the Duke Medical School team. It was the, what they called a secret game. Some of y'all heard that. The first time a black school and a white school played each other and they didn't let any press in, they didn't let nobody they were playing. But on one end, you got cats like that. In my generation, I think about uh, Olympians like uh, my old classmate, Angela Williams, who was a Tennessee State Tiger Bell. When I went to my freshman year in 1983, was her freshman year. She spent a couple of years at Tennessee State. She ran for Trinidad and Tobago the end of her freshman year. She ran in the Olympics, Trinidad and Tobago. She transferred after, in 86, I think it was, 85, to Seton Hall, where she became All-American. Well, she's been the track coach at Prairie View. 
That's in swag. She's swag. Coach Wynn's been coaching Prairie View now for almost 20 years. Committed to those black colleges. Again, an Olympian. Absolutely. Now, track and field different than football. Not a revenue-generating sport. I'm coming back to Ed Temple in a minute, but there are many other names I could bring up. The great Joe Gillum Sr. The pro coaches, Don Shula and them, will come down to Tennessee State and watch his practices and pick his brain. He wrote four or five books on football strategy, offense and defense. This is my uh, brother, Randy Fuller, my sister's uh, husband. My brother's father, in many ways. You You know, in many ways, Joe Gillum Sr. adopted Randy. He was as close to him as his blood father or even more than his blood father in many ways. When Randy came, Randy played in the NFL, went to the NFL from Tennessee State like a lot of players. But Joe Gillum Sr., brilliant, brilliant mind. He and his wife, Tennessee State, all the way through. And I'm just missing Tennessee State. Again, we're annotating. I want people to fill up the chat, fill up the annotations with stories like this of coaches who were also academics. Coach Gillum taught classes. Coach uh, Temple was a sociologist by training. He taught sociology classes. Now, that Deion Sanders' job not to teach sociology, not to teach history. Deion Sanders' job is to bring in, is to, no, Deion Sanders' said job is to make us think. Okay, let's think. So I could have talked about any of these people, right? Could have talked about any of these people, but I don't want to talk about, oh, yeah, and then maybe let me say, for my generation, you know, you got an Anthony Williams, you know, from previous generation, you got a John McClendon, you got a John Merritt, you got an Eddie Robinson and Graham, I'm so forth and forth on Big House Gaines out in North Carolina. Now, what about this? Young generation, you can't expect these. Well, what's the sister's name, uh, Professor Hunter? She was the uh, she threw the hammer in the uh, in the Olympics. She made the political stances. Gwen, Gwen, we talked about her. Gwendolyn, it'll come to me. Gwen Berry. Gwen Berry. Prof. Yes. Where is Gwen Berry right now? Where is she right? I interviewed her too. Where In September 2022, a couple of months ago, Gwen Berry took a job coaching track and field under Chandra Cheeseboro, one of Ed Temple's Tiger Bells, who for years has been the head track and field coach for women's and men's track at Tennessee State. Gwen Berry took a job and is on her staff. Gwen Berry is now working at HBCU. Thanks, Dion. Let's think. What? Oh, yes. Let's think. We're going to think, bruh. We, we love you. I'm going to come down to Atlanta, shake your hand. Thank you, brother, because you have shaken us awake. We're going to think about this. Thank you, brother. You see, you, you have choices in life. Gwen Berry ain't a millionaire like you. They tried to crucify Gwen Berry. That's right. You did interview her. That's right. Now, why is Gwen Berry in, in Nashville, Tennessee, at an HBCU, training young women and men, throw that hammer? To send them to the NFL, ain't no money in track like that. Not for black people. Let's go to Ed Temple. I think that's where she is. You should check while I'm doing because I don't want to make no mistakes. I mean, it's so new. Ed Temple. Now, y'all see now why, why I like this because the name of his memoir, Only the Pure in Heart Survive, 1980, Broadman Press. I don't know if y'all can find this. It needs to be brought back into print. Now, if you want to read about all those, you know, a lot of these black cops, there's only one, let me not say that because I don't want to say only. I'm aware of one book that kind of traces this stuff in terms of athletic tradition at an HBCU. The book that does it in the greatest detail that I'm aware of is my man Dwight Lewis's book, A Will to Win. 
which is about the athletic history of Tennessee State University. Every HBCU should have a book like that. Because see, what this does is unblock our memory. Because the idea is somehow we try to be big black-faced versions of Colorado or Alabama or Florida State or, you know, the idea we're supposed to be black-faced versions of it, that's coming from amnesia. It's not coming from the momentum of memory. I ain't mad at it. Every generation has to inherit a tradition and shape it to the context of their times. But that begins with inheriting the momentum of memory. It does not begin with a blank slate. So just like those Tuskegee students when uh, those Tuskegee students of the 1960s, Gwen Patton, so I think Gwen Berry had to take her last name, Gwen uh, Patton and uh, all of those students from that period, Chester Higgins and them, pushed back against the previous generation who were their teachers and administrators, people like Charles Gamigan, who had been the medical doctor, who was on the faculty at Tuskegee, worked at the Black Hospital there, who, who was the lead plaintiff in Gamigan versus Lightfoot to bust the gerrymander. Once they got the right to vote, that next generation came in and said, we're going to put a black sheriff in Tuskegee. And the previous generation was like, hold on now, slow your roll, because we want these white people mad at us. Look, man, y'all fought for the right to vote. You gave us the baton. We're going to use that shit. <laughs> so Gamillion and them couldn't have anticipated the Black Panther Party of Lowndes County, Alabama, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, and the Lowndes County Freedom Organization has a direct tie to the Black Panther Party in the West Coast, but it is the momentum of memory that enables us to make that momentum. But if you start from scratch, you'll think football coaches and track coaches and baseball coaches and, and basketball, well, what am I saying? Basketball and football coaches at HBCU, you'll think their job is to level up what is level up? Level up and make all this money. Yeah, we don't want nobody shutting their doors, but and we want everybody giving back to their schools. And we must understand that people was already coming. We want more. And then the question we have to ask is, what is the purpose of these schools? These young people tried to push us toward the black universities in the 60s and 70s. I don't think the university can be reformed as a structure. Hence, narrative Nubia, the work we're doing here, because this is where it should always be. But for the moment, let us consider the possibilities of what we can do at our black colleges as extensions of the community that where, where this is the center. Let us think about it, not in the context of dreaming what can be, but going back to what was and using the momentum of memory to adjust having that memory to impose ourselves on how to make it better now. To Ed Temple, Wilma Rudolph, forward. Sonny Hill, you better, you better, you better throw that name. I used to listen to Sonny Hill every weekend on WHAT. Come on, y'all. This is Wilma Rudolph writing for Ed Temple, her man. Oh, by the way, Cheeseboro ran for Rudolph. I mean, ran for Temple. And so did uh, Wilma Rudolph. In fact, Chandler Cheeseboro was one of the last great medal-winning Tiger Bills. That's the name of the Tennessee State track team. Gumaraw writes, I remember the year 1954 when I had just begun to find out that young girls were involved in sports. I saw for the first time Coach Edward Temple wearing his black pants and black and white striped official shirt waiting for the basketball game to start. She's 14 years old at this time. Ed Temple used to go get the high school students. Remember now, this is, this is, a, this is segregation. Skeeter, as they called it, Wilma Rudolph. Made a movie about it. Y'all should go look at it, right? That's in uh, memory service, correct? We talked about that, didn't we, uh, Prof? That's yeah. where Denzel Washington, his wife, met <laughs> on, on, on the set of Wilma, right? So if you were a young kid, she says, writes, playing sports, you thought all officials were the same. They were the mean guys. Little did I know at this time in my life that this lovely man was none other than Edward Stanley Temple. 
women's track coach at Tennessee State University, who was destined to become a world-famous track coach. So I was very excited and couldn't believe it when he asked, when asked by my high school basketball coach if I would like to go to the university and train with the college women. Thus began a different life for Wilma Rudolph. She's writing about herself. She says, the beginning was rough and great. And the first woman runner I met on campus was Mae Fags. My life has never been the same. Mae Fags. In fact, I'm going to show y'all something because I know we, we're going to run a little bit up against the clock in a minute. I got a four libation to open up the session today. But I want to show y'all a page in here that Ed Temple put because the last few chapters are about like track. He's, he's got a whole training regimen in here. Let me see if can I find this page right quick of these black women. Because the thing that Ed Temple was proudest of in his life, this was 1980. Uh, Coach Temple made transition in 2016, not that long ago. This statue of him on Tennessee State's campus. Here he gives a page called The 25 Most Outstanding Tiger Bells, 1950 to 1975. Number one, Wilma Rudolph Eldridge. Number two, Wyoming Tyus. I went to school with her niece, Caratina, went to Tennessee State. Eve McGuire Duvall. Madeline Manning Jackson, Lucinda Williams Adams, May Fag Stars, Barbara Jones Slater, BJ, uh, Martha Hudson Penema. He goes on. But here, Prof, can you see what's there in addition to their names? Their, their degrees. Every Tiger Bell Ed Temple ever coach graduated from college. You know what is powerful about that? You just talked about a while ago, Vivian Stringer retiring, her replacement, Coquise Washington has a law degree. She's Come on now. She's a law degree. I was like, from Notre Dame. School professor, school. Professor Hunter, what is the purpose, Professor Hunter? Yes. What is the purpose? We haven't asked that question. Prime said, I'm here to get these boys coached up and I'm gonna get them, uh, you gotta live in your dream. What's your dream, Prime? Make their money? Well, bachelor's degree, I don't need a bachelor's degree. Yeah, they came to college. We're gonna listen to Coach Temple. We're gonna listen to his ancestor. We're going to listen to this ancestor. I could go on and talk about, but let me let me go here. Let's go to Ed Temple. Ed Temple, book one, chapter one, the weirdest chapter of them all. Ed Temple says, between blowing trumpets and winning gold medals lies the weirdest chapter of them all. The story of how I came to Tennessee State University and how the Tiger Bells ever got started to begin with. If I hadn't been tricked, I wonder what I'd be doing today. See, here's the problem. When you start asking teenagers what they want to do. Of course, they all want to go to the NFL. I walk in, I, I, <laughs> one of the reasons we have a Black Family Summit is because I'm sure it'll be discussed today, every five-year-old to every 15-year-old in the country, if you black and if you want these schools where the teachers aren't paid enough, and you ain't gonna, you ask them what they want to be? I'm gonna play for the Ravens. You know how many Jackson jerseys I done seen between the train station? <laughs> and, all right. Temple writes, I was the only child of Christopher Richard and Ruth Naomi Temple. He's from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, by the way. But my grandparents, who lived four blocks away, for the most part, took over raising me. I remember them taking me every Sunday to the Baptist church. It's governance right here, where we, were all, where we always sat exactly seven seats back from the front corner. Nobody else ever got in those seats. I would sneak in things to play with and stayed in trouble pretty often. My music career began in the sixth grade. He talks about playing the trumpet, goes on. He said, when I transferred to John Harris High School, I became the, an all-state halfback in football and the first black captain of the track and basketball teams. He says, I'll never forget one time we were playing a basketball game in Hershey. You ever been to Hershey, Professor Hunter? And, <laughs> 
And I was the, then the co-captain and the only black on the team. The Hershey cheerleaders kept chanting, quote, get that nigga, get that nigga. Our coach called a timeout and told me if I wanted to pull out that he'd understand, but I finished the game. A similar incident happened when the football squad went off in a chartered bus to play a game. He goes on, says how they attacked the bus. He said, my main rival during the time was a fellow named Leroy Craig at William Penn High School. He was also an all-state athlete. We both had several college scholarship offers. I had every intention of going to Penn State. Penn State, you know Pennsylvania, you know what that is about. I also had this neighbor, Tom Harris, who was going to coach at Tennessee State. I had never heard of it. And he kept encouraging me to go with him to build up the track program. I didn't pay too much attention until he gave me the clincher. He told me that Leroy, put my timer on, that Leroy Craig was going to TSU. What I didn't know was that he had already told Craig that I was going there too. Both of us were thinking that this unknown school must be pretty good if the other was going, so we both went. Tricked him. Now, you recruiting boys with dreams going to the NFL. I'm wondering how much time you let them spend with that faculty. I wonder if you had them go and do a ritual. There's a new book out. I don't know. I'm just starting to read it. And I'm always skeptical of folks working on stuff. I think this story should be told by the people who were there. Uh, Nancy Bristow just wrote a book called Steeped in the Blood of Racism, Black Power, Law and Order, and the 1970 shootings at Jackson State College. Uh, but I would recommend that everybody, if you can get your hands on this particular book, Mary McGram, we're talking about her new book on Margaret Walker. This is a piece that she edited uh, for Margaret Walker called On Being Female, Black and Free. Essays by Margaret Walker, 1922 to 1992. Margaret Walker was on the faculty at Jackson State College, as we talked about many times. Oh, not many times. Last week, there's a piece that she wrote in here uh, that actually that is quoted in that other book on the uh, anniversary, second anniversary of the massacre at Jackson State in 1970. If you ever go to Jackson State College, you know that there's a, a marker there for the killing of those brothers on page 177. Give me a second here. I'm going back to Ed Temple. Because again, Temple said, I never heard of Tennessee State, but he figured it must be a pretty good school if that's where my man's is going, my big rival. And so the white schools wanted them. They went down there because the guy tricked them into going. Um, when Philip Gibbs and James Earl Green, Ashe, Ashe, the two black students who were killed by the funky police in Mississippi, in the murders as they shot at and wounded black children, black people in Jackson, Mississippi, Jackson State College, they killed these two brothers, going along with massacres at Orangeburg, South Carolina, South Carolina State University, Southern University, these massacres that took place, these police killing black children in the 1960s, 68, 69. Well, it happened at Jackson State, May 1970. There's a memorial on campus, and I won't reach for, maybe we'll talk about this a little bit next week, and we'll get back to Ed Temple under the time we have today. But I'm mentioning that because these guys were tricked to come to Tennessee State. In a minute, we're going to see what that meant for the life of Ed Temple, who spent the rest of his life at that university, albeit under different circumstances, but created something that Deion Sanders could coach another 150,000 years and never come close to touch the hem of the garment of a John Cheney, of a Vivian Stringer, of an Ed Temple. And that's not a critique of Coach Sanders. Wish him every good thing in life. Please, please understand that. It's not a critique of him. It's a different question. This man is not the issue. He's symptomatic of something else. The social structure frames us in a way that not only does not advance us, but flies in the face of the momentum of our memory of why we did athletics in the beginning. Going on, he says, well, 
at Temple Rights, when we got there, the track program couldn't go anywhere but up because there wasn't any. We didn't even have any scholarships, just work aids. I had never even had a black teacher or been in an all black situation before coming south. I'm gonna tell you that some of them guys that came to play for Jackson State that are now gonna transfer into the transfer portal. And I see that the coach Mississippi Valley State is leaving. In fact, y'all know, you know what he did. I went and got one of my favorite books and reread it again. The history of the Mississippi Teachers Association, Cleopatra Davenport Thompson, who was on the faculty at Jackson State for years. I don't know how many of them ball players even heard that name, even though there's a building on campus, the education building named for Cleopatra Thompson, Dr. Thompson, who, by the way, is in the uh, Alcorn State, her undergrad alma mater, Hall of Fame for playing basketball. Anyway, went back and looked. I wonder how many of those young players were introduced to the momentum of memory of where they were from. Because they didn't go down there for that. They went down there to play ball. But since you're here, let's look at this Jackson State massacre. Let's go over to the Margaret Walker Center just this afternoon. I'm not just talking about dressing right and going to class and not wearing shower shoes. No, we're going to, since we're here, let's be here. Let's be here. Now I'm going to Colorado. Y'all going? My mind's telling me no. Not going. And it ain't just the big leg girls in Mississippi. I think that's what the younger Sanders is like. I got a girlfriend now. You think I am, Trevor Noah? But anyway, the point is that it ain't just that. Now you got something in your mind. You're 18 years old. How the hell are you supposed to know? But you might pick up on something that says, I think I'm gonna stay here because I can get to the league from anywhere. But and I love you, brother. I'm gonna stay in touch with you, but I think I want to stay here. Why? Because you know that, that afternoon we spent over there at Margaret Walker Center, and I was reading through this. I was thinking, I came down here to play ball. Anyway, let me go on. Temple says, he says, in Pennsylvania, he said, I've never even had a black teacher or been in an all-black situation before coming south. In Pennsylvania, there were just six blacks in our graduating class of 200. We weren't used to the back of the bus and side door in the theater routine either. We had just been took. And even when track program was developed, we didn't have any big-time competition. We just competed against other all-black schools. Sound familiar? So well, this is a long time ago. I knew Ed Temple. Yeah, 1983, when I came to Tennessee State, Ed Temple, his wife was running the post office, and the man was coaching Olympic-level athletes, the only coach to coach the, to lead the Olympic track team for the United States in two consecutive Olympics, 1960, where Wilma Rudolph won all the medals, in 1964, where his Tiger Bells went and took all the rest of the damn medals. And he would have been the one to do three, uh, three coaches. He was the coach for the team in 1980, and then the United States boycotted the Olympics. And the last of his Tiger Bells to go sweep a bunch of medals, of course, Chandler Cheeseboro is the coach now at Tennessee State. Let's keep going. My man say, let's think, let's think. He says, I've always figured that things happen for a purpose. Sounds familiar. So I settled down and decided to make the best of a bad situation. I chose to major in physical education and sociology and worked toward that goal. In my junior year, I met my future wife, Charlie B. Miss Temple. Uh, she writes chapter two. They go back and forth in physiology class. And we just eased on into dating. He says, when I graduated in 1950, I sent out several letters applying for a coaching position in either football or basketball. One of the first teams I coached in Nashville was a group of Church of Christ ministers. He goes on, he says he won that summer league. And then that summer, he says the Tennessee State coach accepted a position with a university in Virginia. And he had in turn recommended to the college president that they make me the track coach time is it okay we got enough time to do this tissue president walter davis suggested 
the great Walter Struther Davis, who's a legend at Tennessee State, but wait, wait till you hear how this happened. This is important now because a lot of the conversation this past week is over. Coach Prime put half, hey, he put half his salary in, he put his money in, he brought all the fields, he did all the stuff, he brought his friends in, he did all the sacrifice, and look what all he did for Jackson State. Remember, a man never carried a clipboard to quote Urias. And he became a winning head coach in two in three in two straight years. Got the SWAT championship. South Carolina State had some for them boys. I don't know what's gonna happen this weekend in Atlanta coming up weekend with uh, North Carolina Central. Who knows? But the point is that out of that, he was able to parlay that into the place he wanted, which is on the way to another place he wanted, maybe SEC, which is the way to another place he wants, which is the NFL. He was never going to be there. But the point for a long time, but my point is that, yeah, he put all his money in. He didn't put all his money in because he got plenty of money, but he put a lot of his money in. That's a great sacrifice on the way to somewhere else. Ella Temple goes on and says, this guy who hired him, Walter Davis, he says he suggested the president of this university. He suggested that I go to graduate school and get my master's. I wonder if that happened. Anyway. And in the meantime, I could work full time in the campus post office. Although I had fully intended to become a football or basketball coach, I began coaching the men's and women's track team. This is the most decorated coach in the history of American Olympics. And he did it with black women. And he's going to be a football or basketball coach to the president of the university. He said, look, you should go ahead and get your master's. And you work in post office while you're doing it. All right. President Davis was broad-minded enough to provide a women's program, but if he had had any idea that it would ever it would surpass football, he wouldn't have turned it loose. Now here's where the turn comes. In fact, later in his book, Coach Temple said, "If they had had, if I had had to coach men, I probably would have quit." And men don't listen. He said, women may not listen either, but I've been doing it so long now that I'm just used to it. In fact, he lived his whole life surrounded by women. He and his wife had a daughter and a son, but he spent his life surrounded by women, black women. Trevor, you're right, brother. You're right. You're, you're right now. You should listen to yourself. All right. He said, I took President Davis's advice, and with a steady paycheck coming in, CB and I were married. CB wanted to move to Pennsylvania just to get out of Tennessee. She was from the rural South, Tennessee. I mean, Temple writes, she was really going to see the world, but I have always said that I'm a Pennsylvanian by birth and a Tennessean by choice. Remember when D.I. came in, so I'm going to Mississippi. I said, okay. But mine, he said, she just told the people, man. Anyway, my family couldn't understand it until they visited down there and fell in love with the place. They had even considered retiring there. He said, in my new coaching duties, I didn't know the first thing about coaching women. All I can remember was once seeing a group of Harrisburg girls running an annual Sunday school meet in Pennsylvania. Later on, they won everything, pen relays, everything. I suppose they were ahead of their time, but I didn't pay too much attention to track then. Says, uh, let me go on. During this time, I began reading in the magazines about an Olympic sprinter named Mae Fags. She had been on the 1948 Olympic team and held the national 220 title. I thought, why not go first class? So I sent a telegram to New York asking her to come to TSU. She's an Olympic, she already in the Olympics, May Fag in the Olympics. He said, why not go first class? So the idea of audacity, that ain't new coach. The momentum of memory. You can't compete for these. She's an Olympic champ. He sent a telegram to New York City. He says, as it turned out, New York University and Tuskegee both wanted her too. Wait, New York, NYU and Tuskegee. Them two ain't on the same. He writes, 
she chose Tennessee State, sight unseen, because it was closer than Alabama to her home in New York, and NYU wouldn't offer her anything. Remember, this is before Title IX. He got a whole chapter on that. He got one chapter called From Title I, and then the next chapter is called To Title IX. Where did I get to that? Oh, thank you, bro. You got us thinking. After accomplishing this feat, we almost lost her because we could only offer her a work aid, and she wasn't used to the South or segregation. To add insult to injury, the school refused to put out the money. The amateur athletic union would have paid half of the expenses to buy fags a train ticket to go and defend her national title. The school wouldn't even pay for her to go defend her national She's an Olympic runner. However, for some reason, she stuck with us and became the spark that set off the Tiger Bell program. She, more than anyone else, taught me about coaching women. Earl Clinton, the college's public relations man, named the Tiger Bells, but May Fags is the one I consider the mother of the Tiger Bells. She was one more stick of dynamite. She also had the experience and poise, and she willingly passed it on to the others. And she was only one of us who knew anything at all about running indoor track. I want to mention here in terms of Tiger Bells, one of the things I love about this is they were not the Lady Tigers. The Tiger Bell, Southern Bell, this is why he did it. Clinton did it the way he did, but let's be clear. You have a lot of, one of the traditions of HBCUs up until now, again, are we blackface versus a white school, is to give the women's teams their own identities. Tiger Bells, track team, Tiger Gyms, basketball team, not lady. What the hell? Anyway, let me show you a couple pictures right quick. Just right quick. Here go uh, Lucinda Williams, Margaret Matthews, Isabel Daniels, and Willie B. White and Wilma Rudolph. He said, I believe in them getting dressed to go. Here go the Tiger Bells as undergrads, getting ready to go beat somebody ass. <laughs> but they dressed. Here's <laughs> Wilma down here. Here go the other teams. Here goes, you know, Temple when he, he was in college at the top. And at the bottom, here's the first uh, championship, national championship team, 1955. I would go on. Uh, here's May Fags down with Isabel Daniels, national AAU championships. May Fags first. She would get up and say, okay, who's coming in second? Because I'm coming in first, Tennessee State, right? People say, well, this is a long time ago. There, of course, Wilma Rudolph. You see Wilma Rudolph there at the top, went in there. Here at the top here are his parents with their grandchildren, son and daughter. We could go on. Oh, yeah, here they are at the White House. There's Kennedy, and here's uh, Wilma Rudolph and her mother there. Lyndon Johnson sitting there, Ed Temple. Anyway, let me go on because I'm, I'm going to be up against the clock. I'm raising all these things to talk about this. But I'm putting it in the context of track and field because, again, this ain't no revenue-bearing sport. And what Temple writes in here, he says, at this HBCU, Tennessee State was considered, I hate to say it this way, but Dwight wrote it this way in A Will to Win. He said it was the Notre Dame of black colleges. It independent, wasn't in the SWAC, not MEAC, not CIAA, any of the uh, black college uh, formations. It was independent. It made its own schedule. And it would run up these records. In fact, the coach of Tennessee State, uh, Big John Merritt, came from uh, Jackson State. That rivalry is there. So when Prime's like, you know, you got to get out just Southern Heritage Classics. Yeah, the contract is trash. You got to renegotiate. But, bruh, bruh, you don't understand some of these rivalries. And guess what? Tennessee State was playing Jackson State for decades before you showed up. So if you think all this, all these people in this stand came because you here, some of them did come because you here. But they was coming anyway. Alabama State, Alabama and fills up to 40,000, 50,000 people in the stadium because that's, that's their rivalry. You understand? We talked about that last week. I'm going to get too deep into that because I want to get into these other pieces where you see these parallels. Again, the momentum of memory. What are we doing? We're looking back into the momentum of memory to think about this. And again, the reason I say that Coach Temple, who lived until 2016, people say, well, this is a long time ago. No, 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 no. 
when Barry shows you that that genealogy is a lie, it's not something you abandon. Let's continue. He says, let me go here. So he's got May Fags. He says, the next year, Pat Monsanto, a teammate of May Fags, joined us, and she excelled in field events. In 1954, the Nationals were held at my hometown of Harrisburg. We made a good showing and lost the meet by only five or six points. My parents put us all up and fed us. It was the only way we could make the trip. They had no money. It's before Title IX. Women's programs were an afterthought, if that. And Davis and them at Tennessee State, the president was considered progressive because they had a women's team at all. But they didn't give him any scholarships. He had no scholarships for these women. The only thing they could get is grant and aid, need-based aid. And even that was short. For years, Ed Temple, after he got scholarship money, said, I'd give out 10 scholarships. And they're year-to-year scholarships. If it was me, I'd make them semester to semester. Why? Because I want to see what you're about. My job is to get you to graduate. You are first a lady. He says lady. So let's say woman. you first a woman. Second, a student. Third, an athlete. Now, you know, of course, Sanders could say that, but it would be the rhetorical ethic. Because if word was bond, we see how you move. Ain't none of them boys going to Colorado won't graduate, and you consider that a success. You're going to be a black-faced version of that uh, plantation runner in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, in basketball. What's that? John Calipari? John Calipari at Kentucky, who will tell them when he come in, look, I want you to be one and done. So I told you, mama, then we're going to make you rich. It's one of the reasons John Cheney ain't like him. Well, John Cheney said he got along, but remember, we talked about that. I, I was at Temple that night that they played UMass, played Temple, and John Cheney came in the back of the press conference to call a party up front talking, and John Cheney came and said, I'll kill you. Seth North Philly talking. I'll kill you. <laughs> Boys, players had to pull him off. Yes, sir. Anyway, so Tuskegee had the team, Tennessee State. Then gets a team. Now watch this. Let me go very quickly again. Here's chapter three from Title One. Chapter two, his wife writes, which is a beautiful title, but I don't, I'm looking at the clock and I don't want to go too far, too much further. From Title One, page 29. Only the appearing heart. Coach Temple, Ed Temple. Temple writes, by 1967, my girls had competed in three Olympics and won 16 medals. So I skipped over all them Olympics they won. When Rudolph, that's when Muhammad Ali won the, the medal. And he didn't want them dancing. He said, these kids, because I had one that would just dance, I sent her home. He said, no, they don't give out medals for queen of dancing. You got to go home. <laughs> these are Olympic-level athletes winning all the medals. He says, by 1967, my girls had competed in three Olympics and had won 16 medals. I had coached two Olympic teams. The Tiger Bells had won 20 medals in three Pan American Games, and we had won 12 national titles. We had done everything you could ask to do on the track, and we still didn't have any scholarships. He had no scholarships. I'm here to make you think. Let's think, bro. If that weren't insulting enough, we were working out of one of the poorest facilities in the country. If any other team at any other school in the nation had accomplished all that we had, they would have had unlimited everything. So we paid our dues for 17 years before we ever got the first scholarship in 1967. After 11 more years and three more Olympics, we finally got a decent track facility in 1978. Talk about Title IX? Shoot, we started at Title I. Now watch this. That's abuse. Okay, it changed at Tennessee State. It should have changed much earlier than that. That's, this is not uncritical. We ain't celebrating poverty. 
But what we're also not doing is trying to aspire to be a black-based version of white. Because what the issue is, the question is, what are you there for? Oh, this book is, at, let's keep going. He says, my very first track team consisted of about two girls and three or four boys and a $64 budget. Now, you don't get much lower than a $64, $64 a year athletic budget. And that was supposed to cover equipment, track shoes, uniforms, travel, everything. That year, we didn't go no place. He goes on and said how the track, you know, the track was on a cow pasture. He said, eventually, we got a $1,500 budget, but we had to stay at that level for about 10 years. That's after they got a $300 budget. Before that, he says, with that kind of pocket change, we didn't go any place for meets except Tuskegee and Alabama State. I had to be the chauffeur, coach, trainer, and manager until Earl Clinton came along and helped me out. They got a $1,500 budget in 1956. He says the Nationals were in Philadelphia and the Olympic trials were going to be just one week later in Washington, D.C. We couldn't afford to make both trips. These are world champions. Couldn't afford to make both trips. But our team was so good, we couldn't afford not to make them. So we made two trips in one. Earl Clinton and I stuck out with the train in two station wagons. We just stopped long enough for gas, restrooms, and hamburgers when the packed lunches ran out. We won the junior and senior championships. Look at that. In Philly, y'all know what that was. Y'all know about Philadelphia. You know, the Penn Relays, you know, the University of Pennsylvania Stadium, they got a picture here of it. They won both them, then drove straight over to Harrisburg, where we stayed, all stayed at my parents' home until time to leave on Friday morning for the drive to Washington for the Olympic trials. We placed six Tiger Bells on the Olympic team. See, it's one thing, come in with the flash, the dash, the boom, 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 get these cats come in one, two years, play some ball, fill up the stadium, and then bounce to the other place where they want the minstrelsy and don't realize they're not getting the swag. You need to let that in Jackson. And I'm mad at you, bro. I'm just saying, you are a disruptor, and that's what you do. Go with God. It's a beautiful thing to watch you in your element. But see, that's very different than what we talk about. What is the, pur the purpose remains undefined until we gather the momentum of memory. Things have changed. Haven't changed enough but they've changed a lot but what shouldn't change is the determination women students athletes men students athletes now they say that rhetorically but we know nobody in plantation style college athletics makes it in fact i'm going to end in a second because i could go on with a lot of this but he's oh anyway and then then, then he got chapter four to title nine now to get title nine he starts with the language of title nine from 1972 he says, it doesn't matter which area of sports world you're talking about, high school, college, or international level. The women have always been deprived. It galls you twice as much when you're accomplishing so much, proving yourself, and still have to take a back seat, whether at home or abroad. He says, for years, many of our runners came primarily from Georgia. In, the, in their segregated schools, the black girls happened to have track and some good coaches, while the white girls played softball. Mississippi, Alabama had programs, while Tennessee didn't have anything, period. He talks about segregation, the Middle Tennessee State Athletic Association, which was the black uh, thing, the integration went away. And he talks about the great black coaches, black women coaches, Miss Marion Perkins Morgan from Georgia, who did work, Nell Jackson, uh, Terry Crawford, all these people who helped him. He says, don't expect $100,000 while you just sit there competing with nearby colleges on an intramural basis. If a school sinks that much into a program, the administration and the alumni will expect some national championship teams or some national championship individuals in certain events. He says, so if you fight and get a budget, don't expect just to get the budget and not do anything. He's saying, I know how these things work. I had nothing and we won all the championships. We came back still to have nothing. He says, so if they give you something, if you fight for and get something, you got to do something. And in that respect, him and Sanders on the same page. But 
That's in addition to the core. What is your purpose? I have no doubt in my mind that Deion Sanders, like a whole lot, of, he got he got children, he got sons and daughters. You want to help these young people grow. Are they going to grow out there in that space? Maybe they will, maybe they won't. I know they ain't going to have no black faculty. I know they ain't going to have no black tradition. I know they're going to have the momentum of white memory. So who knows? Because they do have family. You're not going out there for that. So again, but the question we have is whether anybody like that comes or goes through black houses, should that diminish or should that divert or should that distract us? Because when people like that show up, they put you at the crossroads. You got to make a choice. We arguing about the wrong things. He should have stayed, should have go. Man, go, go with God. Glad you came, glad you left. Hey, it's beautiful. What is our purpose? Look at what Deion Sanders did for Jackson State. Look at what Jackson State did for Deion Sanders. This is what black colleges do. He says, now let me go to this other point though I wanted to make on here because he's talking about competing with the white schools. And I think I might have, uh, oh yeah, chapter five, rounding up the horses. Newspaper reporter Jeff Hanna once asked me, coach, with all the schools opening up and getting girls, white schools now, not just getting girls now, getting the boys, getting the football players, getting the basketball players. With all the schools opening up, do you feel that you can get the top girls? Or do you think they will go to another school, like the University of California, Southern Cal, or U of Tennessee, with all of them offering scholarships? Do you think you can still get the caliber of material like Tyus, Randolph, McGuire, and all of those? I told him I didn't see why not. However, at the time, I hadn't really thought of it in that respect. I decided that perhaps he had a point. Even coaches sometimes fall into a rut. And I, for a while, was beginning to get into one. In thinking about this, I set a goal and said to myself, all right, I'm going to go out and check. I'm going after Kathy McMillan. I knew everybody in the country was after her. She had at least 25 scholarship offers. She was a tremendous jumper and had great potential. I had an annual recruiting budget of $260. So I had to make one long trip to see the three girls that I was interested in coaching. I drove along in my car and ended up slipping and sliding all over several states in rain, sleet, and snow before I could return home. McMillan lived in Rayford, North Carolina, and that was to be my first stop. Talk about small. The place is off of the map. You have to go 30 miles away to get a McDonald's or a place to stay. As it worked out, Tennessee State was where McMillan wanted to come. UCLA and UT had magnificent facilities to offer. And at the time, we had the poorest. But here was a girl who overlooked all of that and wanted to come where the program was. I didn't plan to change very much in McMillan's training because she had the good fortune to have, been, have excellent coach William Colson in high school. Whatever he taught her to get her to jump 22 feet, I ain't changing. Now he goes into recruiting. He said, oh, I, I, I'm going to begin to, to, to nut this down. She said, he, he starts talking about, if you come to Tennessee State, I don't play favorites. I work the hell out of y'all. But we keep our practices on two hours. We do this, but you got to be on time. I mean, he's very clear about this. But that, he said, people come and say, I'm the best. Well, you ain't run here yet. And even if you are, do prove to be the best, you're joining a program where we've had the best when we ain't had nothing. So this is a mutual thing. And woman first, lady first, as he would say, lady first, student second, athlete third. This is, now, they're going to be special kind of young people who say, that's where I want to go. They're not going because they're thinking about the Rams or the Cowboys. They're going because they're thinking about that program. Oh, my name, Woman Rudolph, name to be said the same. 
breath. Let's go on. He says, as we were coming back from a meet one time, I asked Brenda Fuller why she decided to come to TSU. She replied, well, I just wanted to find out how good I was. I think I'm pretty good, but I wanted to find out once and for all I really was good. I told her that I liked her attitude. When the other girls were competing in the Junior Olympics, heard that she was going to Tennessee State, they said, oh, we don't want to go there. No, they work too hard there. She told them that if you're going to become good, you'll have to work. See, we're recruiting with the wrong thing. We're recruiting, well, I don't know, I'm not a, he said, we presently offer 10 track scholarships and I don't generally carry more than 10 on the track team. More often than not, it's been less. Anybody at school can try out for the team and many do try. It looks like a stampede on the first day of tryouts. On the second day, there may be a dozen or so still coming out. Something like my metanetra class, me and Mario Valencia took. It's like 60 people in it the first day. By the end of the semester, it was about 15 people. And Obinga said, I'm taking you four. Me, Mario Valencia, and an ancestor now, a brother named Troy Allen. We were his students. On the second day, there may be a dozen or so. By the third day, we usually down to our regular scholarship girls. It's not often, maybe three or four times in all these years, but occasionally I've had a walk-on that stuck with it. He talks about Kathy Williams who did that. He says, once in the program, too many want to come up faster right now instead of working up through the ranks for four or five years. Well, four or five years, it's maybe 400 or 500 years now with name, image, and likeness and all this kind of stuff. Again, what is our objective about to wind this up? He says, I strongly believe in a solid step-by-step -step building process. This patient, hardworking kind of person is difficult to find, but I feel that there are still some out there. I always tell the freshmen that they aren't going to make us a program. The program is already made. They might add a chapter to it. That's genealogy. And I'm gonna tell you right now, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that at Jackson State. Everybody knows that at Prairie View. Everybody knows that at North Carolina Central. Everybody knows that at uh, Philander Smith. Everybody knows that at uh, University of Arkansas Pine Bluff. And you're not going to be a plantation economy college. You're not going to be one. The question is, what do you want? And I'm loving it. All the track people are in the chat talking. So, Prof, I, I want to pause there for now because um, there's a lot more I want to say about this question of institution building and how we frame this around, how does it free us, but I think we can wait till next week. But I wanted to just raise those names because they're very important for us to think about. And Ed Temple gives us a glimpse in what these coaches did. And, and instead of fighting and being angry with one another about opinions, let's focus on reclaiming our memory. And yeah, yeah having these discussions around what we know, not what we feel, not what we think, but what, what was done before and before and before, because there was always a before. We didn't just land here, you know. That's right. Here. So thank That's you for connecting the dots and bringing it back and erecting the names of people we have probably never known or have forgotten because it's really important uh, yes. that we don't forget. Yes. Oh, I, I should let me look at the clock. I know they're gonna come look for me in a minute, but I do. I found something I should have said before. Let me just say this right quick, Rob. He says, um, he says, if certain coaches don't get scholarships, then you hear them saying things like, "quote Well, I don't get a scholarship, and I don't get that type of girl, et cetera, et cetera." He says, "You can always hide behind that. In my program, there's no hiding place. We got to jump up and get it. That's what it's about. Our program is geared for international competition." We're looking for the world record. We're not looking to hide anywhere. Some of these things are what you've heard, you're hearing from the women. 
and they have a lot of men belly aching. Some of these died in the wool coaches have even gone with their hats in hand to complain to the president. Their main complaint has been that they've worked hard all these years building up a separate program and they run their programs from the football gate. Remember Deion Sanders was saying, you should take this money since the football team won, you should get that money in the athletic program. Don't just put it in the general fund. Ed Temple says, as far as this argument goes, how many women pay to go to a football game? I would assume that almost 50% of all the gates in football and basketball are paid by women and girls. If they want to become that technical, why don't they set up two booths? One for all the women who pay to attend the games and one for all the men who pay. Then take up all the money from the women's booth and put it into the women's programs. If, as they say, the spectators pay for these athletic programs, then you have to consider the fact that women are also spectators. I realize that this would be ridiculous, but it's no more ridiculous than saying that football pays for all the athletic programs. And football has done it with larger crowds at the football games. Well, women are people too. The first concern, finally, of our educational institution should be education. Mm. Sports should be secondary. The money spent on some of these school programs is a crying shame. Half a million dollars or $2 million is a load of money. Some of these schools have set up athletic programs as pro camps. If they are that concerned over money, we end with this. Ed Temple says, why don't the pros put some money into it and just go on and call it their training camp. That's from a man who a thousand years from now, name will be in the book. I don't know where Deion Sanders' name will be. Maybe it'll be there too. But you come on back with about three dozen gold medals and we can have a conversation, bro. That man say, if it's going to be that, why don't the pros just put some money in college training camp? So you left an institution and went to a training camp. Go with God, bro. But don't call it education. Anyway. That's from Ed Temple. <laughs> Hold that book again. Hold it up so people can see the the, the cover. The yeah. Oh yeah, the cover is just only the. This is an old beat up copy. I keep my autograph copy somewhere in Texas. It's called "Only the Pure in Heart Survive." Ed Temple with B. Lou Carter, for by Wilma Rudolph. I don't know that it's in print. Um, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> but but here's the thing. Come on back, Rob. Here's the beautiful thing about it. What we're doing here again. Look. We can do the research. We got a lot of lawyers in here. You done built a team. You know, is it open copyright? Where's the Temple family on this? Is somebody, and believe me, every week somebody reaches out and said, Dean, look, Dean Phillips with Tuskegee, he the one told Brian Jones, hey man, you gotta, you gotta have a conversation with these cats because they're because they're watching. Let's find this copyright. Look, get the Temple family the money. Let's bring it back into print. Is there a digital version? It can narrative lead in there. We actually are building a library as we speak in, in narrative, is. which is, you know, the whole the whole point of what we're doing. Um, also, right. your class on Monday, is there, do we have the reading for that? Because I yeah, don't Yeah, I, I think I, 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 All right. I, I so think that'll be I, in, it'll yeah. be in narrative. Okay. All yes. Right. The reading Absolutely. will be narrative for Monday's Africana Studies class. I know you have to yes. go for a libation. Yeah, I'm over for a libation. All right. Love you, Dr. Carr. Thank you. I love Thank you me. all. Listen, fill, keep filling up the chat. And those of you on YouTube, please, any name you heard, any place you heard, we're writing this thing together. This is the point you made at the beginning. This is the through line. Do you realize this disrupts everything? Don't wait on these academics to go pay themselves and give each other a voice, tell your story. You tell your own story. Next week, we're going to finish up on this trilogy. We got more to say because they're all going to be down in Alabama for the Celebration Bowl. And there's a whole nother thing we'll get into. Love you. Love you, too. Bye. And family, see y'all on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. You know, we keep it going. But let's not fight and bicker and say somebody's wrong and somebody's right. We're all right. We're here reclaiming our memory, reclaiming our time. That's the purpose of being here. I love you. See everyone next week. <laughs>